Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with a buddy of mine, Steve Marley. You may know Steve Marley from booking some of our previous guests like Jason Bresler and Chase Martin. Steve is a former U.S. Marine and current New York City firefighter. When he was in high school, the towers came down, so he decided to enlist and go fight overseas. After four deployments in just four years, he returned to fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a New York City firefighter, where he served for more than 15 years now. Ben and I spoke to Steve at uh, our new studio in New York City, kind of a rental studio, so don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, It was refreshing to get everyone there in person, and uh, we let the tape run a little bit, so you're going to notice that this episode's a little longer than the others. Not going to do a cut in the middle, so I just want to make mention of a couple things now. Uh, As we are finalizing this episode, it's Giving Tuesday. You know that our show likes to give a lot to charity, not just the money that we raise directly, but redirecting you to some of those. If you check the RSS feed, we're going to drop in a few uh, of the ones we chat about today, namely Tunnel to Towers, uh, New York Burn Center, and the New York Widows and Children's Fund. So please check those out when we talk to them or look in the RSS feed today. If you feel like supporting our show, head over to thankyounowwhat.com or hop onto patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat and subscribe. Make sure you're subscribed on your podcast player too. Let's get on to our chat with Steve. So uh, my father was a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. That's my dad's brother. Um, their mother, both brothers were firemen, and my grandmother's father, which is my great-grandfather, was also a fireman. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Can we talk about getting in here this morning? <laughs> oh, you don't have a microphone, so we're just going to have to tell the story. We're in your old studio. We do, like, movie production here. We're a very nice part of Manhattan, by the way. And we couldn't get in, so luckily our interviewee is a firefighter and uh, was able to uh, breach the door very quickly and without much trouble at all. Yeah, it's good uh, not to cause damage if you have to get into places sometimes. So sometimes a credit card comes in useful for certain locks. Yeah. Uh, you guys never met each other too, right? No, I've heard Ben on the podcast prior, but I haven't met him yet. Oh, yeah. Ben is elusive. He... We did like a bonus episode last week and, uh, or for the one, two weeks ago after his movie premiere, but he doesn't really talk on the show. I can't, I mean, this is all new, like being face to face. Yeah. You usually got like solitaire up in the other window and, uh, or we're on the internet or something. So a movie premiere, what do you got going on? I uh, did a documentary. Um, on what? It's on this, uh, prisoner dude, um, who, uh, made art in prison. He made it on the prison sheets themselves. This huge mural didn't see it put together until he got out. So we heard about him right when he got out of prison and he was putting this together and we thought we'd make a movie about him. Okay, cool. That's what we did. We followed him for the last eight years as he really became an art star, which I wasn't expecting. You know, it's like you have people coming out of like an MFA program, like a really blue chip type school and they're not going to make it. And this guy's just out of prison. And I didn't think he had good odds and he was just like stuck to what he wanted to do and had the discipline to, to do it. So he's done well. 
pretty yeah. awesome. He brought up all of his like uh, formerly incarcerated uh, artist buddies too. So a couple of them have like this um, uh, this organization that helps people come out of prison, get into art, and then there's a few other guys who are doing shows here and there. So it's pretty cool. That's so we will have to story. work it into our normal art gallery visits. <laughs> yeah. That's a good story because you always you know hear about prison how they should be performing people more instead of just punishment. So uh, if they have a talent, you can marinate that. They got the time to do it there, and you know. If you could focus uh, that energy into something good, I think, you know, some of those guys can actually focus pretty heavily on something like that and get it done. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like inside it's a value because it's like if you can paint a portrait or do a tattoo, like that's a value. But that same skill outside isn't worth that much because there's a ton of people that do it. But inside, if you can, if you have the skill to do it, you can actually be successful well, it sounds like your documentary is good for that to show the exposure for at least the, for that gentleman in particular yeah. and some of his buddies. But because, yeah, what, you know, I'm not I don't know much about art, but what is art worth? You know, a lot of people could paint good pictures, but I think it's the feeling and the story behind it yeah. that might give it some significance. And maybe uh, something like that, like even, you know, veterans that become artists or painting and they're overseas and uh, these hard areas. It's like your emotion comes out in their pictures and some people can detail that in words and some people detail that in art, you know? You love documentaries. I do love documentaries. You love coming to the bar, having a couple drinks, and then cornering people and talking to them like you're the expert on whatever the latest documentary you watched is. Yes. Well, I want to hear their opinions. I I want more info. I just like information. Okay. I don't know much. And I don't spew what I hear in the documentary. I say it to hear the other side, you know. What's the latest? documentaries are always uh, very biased. So I like to hear both sides of those things. Well, we're sitting with, the, like, a pro documentarian right here. So <laughs> he's probably They should have a documentary a whole... duel about two different things. And you each create a documentary, and then they show them, and then you have, like, a jury. Like two opposing sides of the same course of events? Yeah, I'd like to see that. Or the same... Uh, yeah, it's the same topic. Person, yeah, topic, yeah, whatever. Whole thing, yeah. Yeah. Well, documentaries on a specific, you know, emotional thing you're looking at, right? It's always mm. that. Oh. So two different perspectives to see so us in the middle can figure out what truth is. Have they I done that truth yet? has been lost so far in a lot of things. Oh, yeah. At yeah. least the perception is that. I mean, because no matter what you're doing, you're you're going to have a take on it. And I think there's so much garbage out there where the filmmaker overdoes it and editorializes and it's like i'm not tuning in to watch a doc for like usually for like the filmmaker's opinion i want to see yeah. the subjects and make my own opinion based off of what i'm seeing and then i'm like oh shit that's like propaganda is what it feels like you know like you get the sad music and mm. and some heavy voiceover comes on and tells you what you should be thinking like that's the type of doc that i personally don't like and don't try to make I feel like those are the documentaries that are being put out there a lot, especially by like, you know, a Netflix or a Amazon Prime. They're looking for emotional response. Social media, same thing. They want clicks, right? The media, the headline, that's all that matters, not the actual story. So they're not really telling a story. I think it's a lost art that I'm hoping young journalists do get back to tell the actual truth of things instead of just looking for the clicks and the the views and the emotional response, but, uh, you know, the pendulum does swing. So maybe it will come back. I don't know. But... I was thinking of like Ken Burns, Jackie Robinson. That's a, that's a cool doc. I don't know. Like just telling history 
doing it in a way that's really getting to the source of it. Not trying to editorialize on it, but like, here's the experience. Let's try to document that and show it for people. Yeah. Yeah. Watching all 25 hours of the baseball uh, series from Ken Burns. It's great. It's a great when you have like staff duty, when you're sitting on the desk overnight, you just put on Ken Burns and you're only halfway through it until you get relieved the next day. Well, look how far it's come and how long ago was that when you would have to listen to that, you know, to kill your duty time. Yeah. Back when I was in duty, like maybe a CD player if you had it, but then you weren't allowed to. But nowadays you got everything at your fingertips to pass time by and to learn something. There's probably a bunch of young soldiers who wouldn't even leave their desk in a 24 hour period anyway. If they could haul their video games down to the desk. Oh, yeah. Well, that was definitely not allowed in our barracks. Yeah. Has it changed? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. I've been out since 06. You, I, I mean, think it's a lot. I, a lot's changed from what I've heard. And most of the guys I know in now, as far as Marines, is there's not many. I don't, you know. There's even, like, uh, on social media, like, when I log into the Instagram for the show, it'll say like, follow this person. It's like an army recruiter or an army drill sergeant who's got like an Instagram. They got a TikTok. They're doing all kinds of weird bullshit videos and they got their recruits in there. It's like, holy shit. If I went back to, I mean, I could just imagine right now, drill sergeant black at basic training, whipping out a fucking cell phone, taking a video with the recruits. Like I would just be getting, I, it would, it would make my head explode. I think it's that next generation thing. Like, you know, our parents, their parents, we always look at the generation below us, like, what's going on? But they really listen to rock kids, and roll music. This is what they do. Like, my son's seven. All he does is he's on that iPad. He knew, he knew how to use it since he's three. Yeah. So I'm almost like, should I limit him on it? I'm like, but this is the future. They're going to be on these things for their careers, their lives. Yeah. And their social dynamics, which is kind of scary, you know, uh, they're going to, they're, the world's going to living yourself through social media. That's what the meta thing is in Facebook. Yeah. It's basically creating another universe. Yeah. We're not even here digital. right now. Our meta avatars yeah. have come yeah. to join in this location. It's going to be a second universe. So they're tapping into that one to, to man the ranks, which were good or bad. I have no idea. They just need the people, right? It's like that movie Ready Player One. Have you seen that shit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty entertaining That's movie. That's 20 years away. Yeah. It's a good movie, but uh, 20 years away. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I'll be living in a pile of old uh, cars in a junkyard, just logging into my gaming account. Do you know when the iPhone was created? 2007, right? We had flip phones before that. Yeah. Now we have our iPhones now hold terabytes of information. You can do everything on them. 20 years from now with exponential technology, I don't think Ready Player One's that far off from 20 years from now, you know? Yeah. Which is scary because maybe you want to be in that universe. Maybe it's better than our life here. Yeah, if you have a shitty life here, you can just create a new one. But when everyone you know is in that universe, what's your social capital here and there, you know? Yeah. You ever have your kid have to teach you something? Yeah, um, all the time now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's playing the piano. He's on the computers. Um, he's only seven, but, you know, he's a sharp kid, and uh, he picks stuff up faster than I can. So You have two, though, right? Yeah, I have a daughter who's four. Oh, okay. She's my little maniac. Yeah. Yeah, she's not teaching me much yet, except for patience. <laughs> That's about it. 
Uh, you guys live far from the city, which is not uncommon for firefighters. Yeah, so we work 24-hour shifts. Um, that's the you know the good part about being a fireman is uh, you know you can leave the city. So I'm in Warwick. It's about an hour and a half away. When I say an hour and a half, that's when there's no traffic. It takes me over two hours, you know, a lot. But, you know, if you're working a 24-hour shift, you get 24 to 36 off, and another one's, you know, it's doable because uh, life in the city just wasn't doing it for me. You know, I moved up there four years ago. I was living in the Bronx, and uh, just apartment, third floor, having a dog, the kids, you have to bring them downstairs. Not much for them to do. Uh, you don't want them to get messed up in trouble. But, yeah, you get in trouble anywhere, but now I got – Eight acres. I got a pond in the front with fish. We got a swamp in the back. The kids got their little fake quads. They ride around. They play with the neighbors' kids. It's a cul-de-sac, so uh, the kids go free run. It's nice. It's you know, it's like a comfort factor. Let yeah. them be able to do what they want. Is that like foreign to you? Not really. Were you a city kid growing up? Yeah, I moved upstate when I was uh, going into high school. Yeah. So. That was a change because I got up there in the summer and, and of course, you know, you're used to living on a block with kids everywhere and I was in the middle of the woods. So then I got into like liking nature because I had no choice, you know, but that's why I probably hunt to this day and fish to this day. So I'm glad I got that out hiking in the woods. Like it was a different world than I was used to, you know, I was always, you know, a kid on the block, you know, hanging out. Yeah. But going up there gave me the other dynamic of, you know, the woods, uh, the mountains. That's like when, when you're in the military, you meet people from everywhere, right? You got people from Boston, from New York, from Mississippi, from Ohio. I, I feel like everyone was from Ohio, too. But um, you got guys that know the woods and you got guys that know the city. I feel like I had a little bit of both, right? Because the city kids, they're, they're real street smart, socially quick. They're good in a team environment with that, but then you needed those country guys, too, that knew the woods. They, it was inherent to them. Like uh, shooting was inherent to them. Um, you know, it's it's kind of two different dynamics that come together pretty nicely. Yeah, the guy who can like uh, he's got his fucking eagle scout. So we need to tie a knot for a hammock that won't fall down. He shows you how. Well, he went to West Point most likely, so well, he was probably my boss, <laughs> or he'd be in Naval Academy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Bresler. <laughs> yeah, it was Bresler. Yeah, he would be my boss. Yeah. What line are you in, like generations of firefighters? So, uh, my father was a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. That's my dad's brother. Um, their mother, both brothers were firemen and my grandmother's father, which is my great grandfather was also a fireman. It's actually, uh, it's funny. I have, a his appointment certificate. He was appointed to engine 10 in 1910 hmm. or sorry, engine 18 in 1910, which, uh, that's squad 18. Now it's not far from here, hmm. but uh, I copied that and sent that to him. They're just, because it was kind of a cool old relic to see someone appointed in 1910. So back then they didn't go to proby school either. They got assigned right to the company and they just trained you there. You know, it wasn't like enough, a formal training for yeah. to, to become a fireman, you know. You just had like a w horse drawn water barrel with some wax trench coats and shit? Yeah, well, he had, they had an Aaron's Fox. Uh, it's like a very old school fire engine. I only know it because my dad collected these like designer plates. With like the years of fire trucks, and my dad's not a buff really. Like a buff is someone who loves fire department stuff, takes the pictures. They're you know they like, they like going to fires and taking pictures. He was nothing like that at all. But like I think the history with his family, he collected those things. So it was kind of I, I kind of learned about that stuff 
through the history of the job through him, you know. So he's not a buff, but like how actually how the fuck did you fight a fire 110 years ago? Man, uh, I don't know. I wasn't alive, but I basically they went in there as much as they could bear until they passed out trying to put the fires out and they would drag out the guy that passed out and put another guy up because they didn't have masks back then. So the mask, we SCBA, that's uh, the pack we wear on our back, self-contained breathing apparatus. It's compressed air, not oxygen like people think. You, you don't breathe pure oxygen. Besides, that makes everything in the room oxidize extremely fast and burn, so you wouldn't want that anyway. Yeah. Like the 60s, that's when they came out with those. Yeah. So these guys just went in, and they would start putting the fire out until they passed out. They'd drag and put someone else up there and keep going until the building burnt down or they put the fire out. Will they do like a hand pump out on the truck or are you, well, I mean, you that, had that fire was, uh, that was already, steam though, engines right? back then, yeah. like 1910. But before that, yeah, it was horse drawn. I'm not, I'm not positive uh, exactly what the pumps were, but there were eventually, you know, pumps back in the day, like manual uh, physical ability with it. But uh, yeah, I think they went to like a steam engine type pump, but um yeah, they got those they old bucket brigades back in the day. That's why they called them bucket brigades. That's uh, gang of, gangs of New York. You ever see uh, when the firemen, they got the little buckets? Yeah. Do you know why those guys would fight? So the fire department is basically insurance, right? You pay them so nothing goes bad. So oh, before they were just paid by the city? This was before they were paid by the city. So they actually would get paid for putting a fire out. So you had companies all over. And they would run out, and whoever put the fire out got paid, so they'd fist fight with each other with a, in buckets of water to put it out, to say they put it out, to get paid. That's where Gangs in New York comes from. Like, that's, like, a, one of the big scenes, but it's also, like, a dynamic in there. Yeah, that's that scene. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. I, I love that when, like, the, the fire, the house burns down, or the building burns down because yeah. the firemen are just fighting each other. <laughs> that's, and that, that's based off history. Yeah. 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 Well, you go hang around the five points today. It's a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. It's looking like it might go back to where it was, though. <laughs> Eventually here with the city. Yeah, maybe. Uh, what did you learn from your dad, like, growing up, be, you know, making the choice to eventually join, you know, that legacy of firefighters? I don't know if he uh, had to show me anything. It was just growing up around it. You know, you're... My uncle was on a job. My father, you know, you're going to the Christmas parties every year. You're at the firehouse. They have the Christmas party at the firehouse. All the families are in there. They have Santa come visit. He comes off the roof, off off the ladder. Like, it's a whole production. Um, I'd, go, <laughs> I'd go in there and, like, hang out. You know, they bring me into work for a day. I just look at those guys like they were gods. Like, they were just – and when you're – I was, like, five to six years old – right on the rig and going and seeing these guys go to fires and you're seeing people fires out the windows. People are going crazy. And these guys are going in there calmly putting the fire out, helping people coming back out all sooty smiling. And like, I'm like, man, like what kind of life is that? That's, that's incredible. You know? So you're on the rig at six. Yeah. I was young. Were you just like sitting in the, sitting in the front seat? Well, you know, like, Hey, don't touch yeah, anything. So, yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. So my uncle was in 40 truck, which is a tiller. So a tiller is the one where there's a guy in the back that drives also. Oh yeah. So I think there's only eight. I New saw York one City. of those like go into the projects yesterday. Like, yeah. Five <laughs> trucks right over here. Yeah. 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 So they, yeah, that's like, there's an extra seat now in the back of the rig. Cause it's not another guy there. Right. He's okay. in the back driving the, 
the tail end of the rig. You remember the old arcade game that was just like you had two steering wheels and it was the fire truck and you had to play with somebody else in the no, back? It's no. the shittiest, like... Uh, <laughs> that sounds amazing. I mean, it looked like it was off the first Atari. How awesome would that be to do right lines. now? What's that? That'd be awesome to do that right now. Get one for the... Mouse. Yeah. The firehouse wouldn't like it. You got to put that in a bar. Well, when the kids come around, they can play it. Well, that's that doesn't happen anymore. That was back in the day. Like you're not supposed to have kids on the rig. Well, that was a big thing after 9/11. You know, a ton of rigs got destroyed. If you had a kid sitting in there, like you know, people would have died. So yeah, you know, they're not supposed to have people on the rig anymore. You know, that aren't firemen because they. they, I think that was after that they they got lucky. That I mean, they didn't get lucky, but. Right. Luckily, there was no kids on the rig. So you're just like, would you do like a whole shift? Your dad just brought you to work and made you do your homework upstairs Like a night or tour or a day tour if it was like one tour. Yeah, I, well, I would sit there, and I didn't know where they were all disappear. So I'd just like sit at the table, but I'd go on the runs and stuff, you know? <laughs> but that was my uncle in 40 truck. I, we'd ride on that rig. That was back when I was really young. And then my father, yeah, I'd ride along sometimes. And the officer would come in. He's like, get out of the rig. I'm like... No, I'm supposed to be riding. Like, what? Like, he's like, hand me my mask. Get a job. It was hilarious. You know, I'm sitting in the rig like a kid. Yeah. Did they ever let you go in and, like... No. No? No. 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 But I was wandering on the street at a young age in, like, the middle of some pretty bad areas at that time. And no one one noticed. It It didn't matter. Yeah. What was it? Like, the 70s where they would... The trucks would just get ransacked while you were uh, while you're fighting. Well, a fire. there was some riots, yeah, in the seventies. Uh, then there was the Washington Heights riots. Uh, they actually firebombed a rig with Molotov cocktails, and they burnt up a bunch of guys pretty bad. Um, they had pretty much fencing around the rig to try to armor it off. Those were specific riots, like um, that that happened the Washington Heights riots. I'm sure it happened a couple other times, you know, mm. prior. It's like the standoff armor on your striker that's supposed to, like, explode the RPG a few feet dude, away. Yeah, well, dude, my Humvee, we, we, no, we didn't have any of that. We literally had Marine armor kit. Like, we had, when we invaded, we didn't have any armor. We didn't have doors on them. Like, we were just driving around. And then we ended up getting some armor. We were putting our own armor on. We'd go to the motor right. pool, and they just had steel, and we'd learn how, you learned how to plasma cut. And then you would bolt it onto your Humvee, so... Yeah. Yeah. We keep the doors off, the rocket just flies right through. Exactly. If you're lucky, right? Yeah. Actually, if you're lucky, it hits you and you don't even know. If you're unlucky, it hits you and blows something off you, right? Yeah. So what about, like, coming of age, you probably set on being a firefighter, but I think we were probably both in high school when 9-11 happened. And then how how much did you want to be in the military before then versus after? I never really had thoughts of being in the military. I remember my... My one uncle, he was NYPD, uh, then he worked for JTTF. He works for another agency now. Um, he always had military posters up when I was young. Like, I remember in his room, there was this picture of this guy coming out of the water with cami paint and said Marines. Like, I didn't, you know, yeah. I saw that. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, so that was like my only aspect of it. Uh, I didn't have any military, really. My family, my grandparents, you know, they were both World War II vets. My uh, mom's father got his foot blown off in the Battle of the Bulge, but they like he died when I was a kid. And my other, my dad's father didn't talk about anything, so I didn't really have much exposure. I would say posters and uh, yeah, commercials. Black Hawk Down coming out. That yeah, that movie that was that that was my senior year. I think too. That definitely influenced it too. Yeah, you were O two. 
Yeah. Because I was 03 from high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just definitely remember that. Wore out the VHS. Haven't watched it since. <laughs> Same thing with the yeah. movie fucking Gladiator. When I was in high school. I watched that 50 times. And then and Braveheart and Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. That's, All those movies came out when I was in a very formative years, and it very it influenced me very hard. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now what do you have coming out? Like 13 going on 30 or something? You can be a superhero, maybe. Oh, yeah. Fucking, it's all superheroes. In the metaverse. Oh, you my can. God. That's why you're going to go into the metaverse, because you can be a superhero. Can they make a movie that's not Marvel? DC. They can be- well, yeah, okay. <laughs> they can make another Batman. We're going to have a fucking list of, like, 20 people who've been Batman. I could be Batman next. You, you actually probably be a good Batman. You have the voice, the demeanor. You don't say much. Socially awkward. Socially awkward. When I'm not in costume. Exactly. I gotta get the fake Christian Bale voice. Oh, Batman! You already have it. You don't realize. Oh, I, I you sound like weird... Neil deGrasse Tyson when I listen to your podcast. Really? You have in, this... in what way? Your voice sounds like him when I listen, and you have the same cadence. You know, I get mistaken for him on the street a lot. You, that's probably not true, but what I'm saying is true. Okay. I was well, telling I Chase that earlier. He was dying laughing. He goes, <laughs> "I agree." I texted him that like six months ago when he just said fuck you back on text <laughs> i was like he's not happy about that uh, well i gotta slow it down for some of our listeners yeah i'm a fast talker it's hard for me to talk slow yeah what were we talking about marvel movies i saw that gucci movie the uh house of gucci with lady gaga it's like a caricature of italians it's that or watch another avengers fucking seven don't go see a movie then. Okay. I'll just sit at home and watch Goodfellas go, again. Come out into the woods. Come out with me. Yeah. I'll bring you up into the woods. Yeah. All right. So aside from movies and some posters with fit dudes in camo paint, <laughs> when do you start actually thinking like, uh, oh, yeah, just clip that back on. Oh, hey, it doesn't matter. It's not like there's a connection here. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. It's just a clip. Yeah, it just, yeah, but where does it clip into? Oh, it just goes into there with the wire? Sorry. I think I pissed why we, yeah, yeah. I fucked up. Yeah, sure. Anyway. I think that uh, the uh, the only cuts they have during Rogan are probably like the, uh, when someone has to get up and use the bathroom. But aside from that, they just let it run, I think. I do kind of like that, though. Like, he lights up his cigar and he's there and he's getting a drink. There's no, po- it's like you're hanging out with them. I think that's like very, uh, People want the experience, right? That's where you listen. You listen for knowledge, but the experience makes you feel like you're in the room. It's organic. So I, yeah, I feel like it's weird, like uh, doing too much cutting. But also, if you just leave five second pauses all over the place in the track, then people are just going to start like turning it off. That's just what I think. I think if you had a group of people, or like you know, you and two others, maybe or three at the most and you could do that where it's like a whole round table conversation hmm. and then you're like you're sitting in the room with these guys kind of it, you know people feel like they're there yeah i stopped listening to rogan a lot just when he moved to spotify just because i don't like having two apps for podcasts and i don't want to listen to everything on spotify so i still use apple podcasts okay and then i only tune into rogan when i see that he had someone on that i actually really want to listen yeah. to versus i used to just like you know, not listen to all the episodes, but I would see them all. So the Apple podcast, you don't have to pay for, though. That's just there, right? 
I mean, I got it on my phone. I, yeah. That's I. So I paid a subscription for uh, for Spotify, but um, I got the music there too. So like, I, you know, I'm at my house, I could just click on whatever mix I want. I could put in like Foo Fighters radio, and it's everything that sounds like them comes on. So yeah, we know what Spotify like is. Well, that's why I have it. I'm yeah. saying no, I have Spotify for music, oh. but I just don't like the podcast interface. Okay. So I use my Apple Podcast for podcasts. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you need the paid version of Spotify to listen to Rogan, or or yeah, I mean you could I have to probably pay for just, Spotify. You don't pay for it. There's probably one with commercials that you don't have to pay for. I have commercials it's like on mine. Pandora. You remember Pandora before Spotify just completely Spotify ate its lunch? It's free. I don't know. It's not a Spotify advertisement right now, but I, I don't know if there's like. A, I don't. <laughs> I'm I don't, just wondering. I don't know if there's like a free version or something that just has ads. Ads anyway. Really? Yeah, the Rogan is ads. No, no, for 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 podcasters ads, but for you for music, the music does not. Okay, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I don't know why we got onto talking about this. Because you're a podcaster. Yeah. Before the break, we were talking about how you actually went from watching movies and looking at recruiting posters to the Marines being a real thing. Yeah. Well, so I was supposed to be going to play to Marist College to play football. Um, got accepted. It's a really good school. You know, I Where is that, Long Island? No, it's in Poughkeepsie. Marist? Yeah. It seems like an abbreviation of a longer word. Nope, it's not. Okay. What does it mean? Marist Red Foxes. I don't know. It's probably named after somebody. Okay. But uh, So you're going there to play football? Well, I was going. Uh, you must have been a lot bigger then. I was actually a lot smaller then. Yeah, I know. I was but, kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so my whole thing was I wanted to, you know, I was going to play college ball, I thought, go to Marist College, good school, get a good degree. And then, uh, you know, 9-11 happened my senior year. And uh, my father, he was actually on vacation. I was in uh, high school. I remember between second and third period, I'm walking down the hallway. My buddy Dan comes up to me, and he's, he's actually a fireman now. And he goes, oh, did you hear a plane hit the World Trade Center? I'm like, what? Like a little plane? He goes, I don't know what plane hit. He's like, is your dad working? I'm like, I don't know. My dad worked in the Bronx, but, you know, we, Dan wanted to be a fireman too. He knew enough about it. Like if something big happens, like a lot of guys go down. Mm. So um, we just go through history class. And then the next class I go to is communication class. I'm walking in and I'm the first one in and there's TVs in there because it was communications class, right? Like learning how to, you know, film our news and producing and all that stuff. So... My teacher, Mr. Hopper, he's crying. So I go, Mr. Hopper, what's going on? He goes, they're gone. I go, what? He goes, they're gone. I'm like, what are you talking about? What's gone? He goes, the towers are gone. He had the news on. I'm like, Whoa. holy shit. So uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving school. Like, I'm not staying in school right now. I, wanna, I, I just can't stay in school. Like, the whole school, like, people were just, like, leaving. Because we have a lot of firemen in my town. So I think last count is 500 and something New York City firemen live in Warwick. Uh, we know that because they do a big... Warwick only firemen's gathering called like the Badgers Club or some stupid thing like that. Like, like uh, on the Flintstones? Yeah, exactly. The like every, once a year they have a thing. There's 500 something guys. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of firemen in our town. So a lot of people's kids were in there. Uh, the dads were working that day. So I ended up running into a girl on the way out and I asked her if her father was working. She said she didn't know. Her father ended up dying. He was a chief downtown. So you know, I got home and, um, I was asked my mom, like, where's dad at? He goes, he went into work because he was on vacation. So he was just, you know, we get uh, 
couple weeks vacation year, he had me his vacation day. And she like, said at home though, but just on at vacation. home. He said he he had the news on and it came up and he said my mom said as soon as the plane hit, he said Bin Laden got up and left. Like that's what he said, which is crazy. But what? he said Bin Laden like as soon as the planes hit. Well, we he also was like a big history buff and he would talk about terrorism and all this, you know, Al Qaeda and all that stuff before that. He was kind of like he's very like yeah. in, into knowing that stuff yeah i remember talking about ramsey yusuf with a guy recently with uh i forget who it was but we were hanging out on 9-11 he was like that fucking ramsey yusuf you know like <laughs> he was talking about the construction of the towers and how they knew to hit him what was he involved in the construction or he, he no, was no no, no. they were like uh some something about the code the construction of the towers like they I don't know. It's probably on some fucking conspiracy document documentary, but yeah, there was like uh, something in the foundation, or they knew that well, they it's would core come down. Construction, right? So core construction means the the columns that support all the weight are near the elevators in the middle, and then on these buildings were in the outside, right? But mm. then there was truss structure between every floor. Mm. So as a fireman, you know truss structure, metal, it it. It weakens, right? Yeah. I remember they were trying to come up with these conspiracy theories talking about how steel doesn't melt. Well, it weakens heavily, and I think it's 100 feet at 1,200 degrees. It will, uh, an I-beam will expand 10 inches, which causes it to sag. So when you have a plane hit, take out a bunch of the truss and some of the core and the out. So there's an inner core and the exterior, like skeletal work. Hmm. Takes it out and jet fuel burning, and it weakens it. In that much area with that weight, that's that's why it pancaked down, like a f- complete full pancake collapse. Hmm. Anyway, we're getting off on tangents, but... No. Okay. Um, so your father says... So he says, Laden that's what my mom leaves says. the house and goes to, I go to, my mom, goes to work. Well, because my mom's sitting here. I'm like, Mom, where's Dad? What's going on? Did you hear anything? And she goes, your dad just said Bin Laden got up and left. Like, that's how she, she was like, God, this guy just left, you know? So, uh, yeah, he ended up, you know, going down. He got... He went to his firehouse. They ended up commandeering a bus. He got down there after both towers collapsed. He was there when seven collapsed, and uh, I didn't see him till January. He stayed there, and he did not leave. He just dug the whole time looking for guys. You know, there was uh, a lot of his friends, you know, not in his firehouse, but his friends on the job. Like, you know how the job is. You, you know a bunch of my friends are on the fire department. Like, they might not work in my house, but... You know, your family with a lot of these guys, you know, yeah. so they, there was a lot of guys missing and um, most of them were dead. You know, uh, some of the ones were my uncle came up as missing back like after one, a day or two. But it was just it, it was a checklist thing. So he wasn't missing. They just didn't know where he was. He was working in Harlem at the time. He wasn't even down there when it happened. But there was a lot of, you know, this chaos. So there's misinformation. Yeah. They got to figure out how to what just happened. And how do we fix this? And how do we help our guys? And how do we help the civilians? Like, I can't imagine, like, uh, that pressure as a leader and then trying to organize chaos. Because that's that's chaos, man, right? Yeah. And there's nothing here built to fix that situation or remedy it. And the guys did an incredible job with what they had, uh, that small unit tactic. Like, these companies just went in and they all went to work, you know? So you didn't see him for four months? Once, maybe twice. Yeah, he was gone till January. Never just stopped by the house, or what? Once or like, twice he came home, stopped by. That was it. He was just like sleeping downtown, and yeah, just slept down there. Yeah, stayed there. Huh. 
what changed about him afterwards? Uh, I mean, that's probably yeah. a very super loaded question. I but. think a lot. So um, I don't think those guys knew at the time what they experienced, you know. Um, you see the slow, gradual, ch- you see the changes, right? But you don't, you don't realize you just, you're, you're a teenager, you get older, you're going out. So I was a senior, so I missed a lot of it. But I think a lot of those guys uh, so unfelt a lot. And then when they retire is the problem. It's um, the same with the military. Like, you know, I'm, I know you've been in a bunch of uh, combat situations and uh, nothing ever bothers you, right? It's the downtime that you might be kind of like uh, getting a little anxiety, reading about things, thinking about stuff. But in the moment, you're always you're, you're in you're 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 in that movie. You're you're in it, man. You're like you're just flowing. You're going. Your training kicks in. I guess they say whatever it is. Like you're kind of numb. But I think once he retired and got out, then you lose your tribe, right? Like now you're not with your boys. You're not doing this. Like right? this would this what the firemen have. They have a kitchen table, right? So you have. 10, 12 guys all sitting there and talking. So you don't ever have a problem. These guys know everything about you. They know about your family, your kids, your problems. They know stuff your family doesn't know about. And once they leave that, I think they don't have that outlet. Like, so, you know, everyone says go to counseling and therapy. I feel like that's the counseling and therapy for your team room or for the fire department. And then once you leave that, if you don't do something to fix it, you're going to go down or... Other people go up. There's, there's two ways they go, right? They become very successful. They become, you know, rock bottom because they have all of that energy that brought them to those places and uh, that discipline but and that anxiety. That anxiety is what makes a lot of guys go into those professions. They need to do something, right? They got that old school warrior mentality. Yeah. So when they get out and they're not using it anymore, that's trouble. Yeah, I always thought that, like, uh, the chaos of the job in some way, like, calmed me down. If you have this like chaotic, tough job where you actually don't have time to, you know, think about all the other kind of shit going on, then you can just get into a groove and, and, you know, you're deployed, you wake up, work out, read some intel, go out on a mission, come back. And it's like, you don't even notice that these are the most dangerous times. You're just, and I'm like, firefighting's got to be the same thing. You know, it's, it's probably more constant because you don't have this cyclical deployment rest refit kind of thing you're just always on the job if something comes up then you have to respond to it but you're probably just at home during the craziest shit right well so like what you're saying too is structure matters incredibly right you need so we have structure and we're brought up in structure our whole lives from parents to kindergarten all the way through to high school college military, whatever your path is, if you don't have structure now, like you got to figure that out for yourself. And, but you're used to being told structure. Mm. So to create structure for yourself is, it's something we're not really taught, right? We always just follow it. We don't create structure. And I think that's part of that too. Like, so like the fire department, I'm on a 24 hour shift, just like when you're on, you know, your deployment, you have downtime there too, but it doesn't matter because you're fulfilling your downtime because you're at work. Like when I'm at the firehouse, I'm always doing something because I'm at work, right? Yeah. So I'm training, I'm working out, we're going on calls, we're going on, uh, we're doing whatever we got to do. And then when you're at home, now you're like, all right, now I'm down. So, you, you know, you got to create structure at your house as well, which 
my wife would say I don't do that well, probably because, uh, you know, she's very organized and I'm not. And uh, I'm a procrastinator. I love dwelling in my procrastination and to build up the anxiety before I do something. But at work, it's not like that. It's just when I'm off. And I think that's kind of built in to my brain from that dynamic of like, you know, I did four deployments. So it was, you're gone for eight months and then you'd come back for a couple and then gone. Like you were, when you were back, you were like, oh, you could kind of relax. But I didn't like the relaxing. I liked the structure of the go, you know? Hmm. So back to this time you're a senior in high school, September to January, your father's downtown cleaning up, looking for people, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. When do you either do the thing with the recruiter or talk to him or talk to your mom or anyone else from your family? Yeah. So pulling the trigger on it. So I, it was in my head now. I'm like, I want to do something like, you know, I saw all those movies we're talking about, the poster, those Marine Corps commercials really got me. <laughs> I thought I was going to go fight a lava monster on a tightrope with a sword. The uniform, they, they got me fully. So I start visiting with a recruiter in the springtime, and uh, I go in to visit him, and a guy doesn't look like a Marine. So I'm like, that's a little suspicious. But, you know, I didn't realize he's a recruiter, and the Marines weren't as good as I thought it was going to be. but uh, What do you mean? It didn't look he like... He was like, hey, they're like a little belly. He just looks soft. I was like, this guy's a Marine. <laughs> I thought Marines are fighting lava monsters, man. I didn't realize this is what's going on. So uh, I started talking to him, and he's like, oh, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to be Marine Expeditionary Unit. I'm looking through the book, right? And they have these guys fast roping all. He goes, well, no, that's infantry. They just, they go on mews, which is basically, you go on like uh, Expeditionary Strike Force special operations capable, whatever. You hang out on a boat until some shit goes down. Yeah, which nothing ever goes down. Like, it's not what you want to do anyway. But infantry, they like uh, they do uh, deployments. Every 18 months, they're supposed to do that. But war hit, and then it wasn't like that anymore. They would always have uh, a mule in the Atlantic or the Pacific, but we were just all going. But at that time, I didn't know anything. So I just wanted, I'd want to do something cool, I thought. And I was like, uh, you know, I know you went SF... 18 x-ray like i didn't know about any of that no, i thought you had in, to be in infantry and military. then okay that's right you were yeah yeah i thought you had to be in first to do any of that i didn't really understand the whole concept but yeah uh, i had no idea about the 18 x-ray straight to sf thing because you could have done also, that right well yeah but i also went to meps and signed my contract at 17 so they're probably like yeah. not even taking you anyway well, i did too i was yeah yeah <laughs> out of the body of a small child too <laughs> how'd this go over with your family and other people that you knew how many kids from high school did the same thing? So one of my buddies, Tim, he joined the year before me, and a guy, another guy, Joe, they both uh, joined. Uh, mm. They were a year ahead of me. So that also, they, they kind of mentored me through the process, you know, about what's boot camp like? With all those things, when you're an 18, 17-year-old kid, you yeah. know, I was 17, you're, you're like, oh, my God, it's going to be Marine Corps boot camp. You see, you know, full metal jacket. But, yeah, so I told my the football coach, I told him I was joining the Marines. He told me I was an idiot. But he said, you have a spot on the team if you get out, whatever, which I never did. I ended up getting my degree, luckily, afterwards. Um, so uh, it, another thing that made me join the Marines was uh, an article came out. I remember in the Daily News and New York Post and said, you know, US, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and it was just proposing it. And it showed, like, 1st, 2nd Marine Division, these arrows going in. So I was like, well, I got to be a part of that. Like, that's what I want to do. Like, mm. I remember that was in my head. So then, yeah, I joined and I left in August for boot camp. Mm. 
So you said four deployments and you're in for how many years? years. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot. It was, it's not normally that it was just at that time, you know, it was, we were hitting it. And one of them was Okinawa too, which they just had to send us to for UDP. But, um, Oh, okay. So that's a deployment. Well, still, yeah, you're eight months in Okinawa. That's a deployment to me. Uh, well nowadays, so one of my old SF buddies is like a company sergeant major now, uh, He's like, yeah, I mean, we just have new guys who aren't going to combat. So they go on like a training trip to Poland and they call it a deployment. And we have yeah, to, yeah. the older guys have to like uh, correct them or, or be like, well, there's, there's one kind of deployments and then there's. Well, I didn't say that was a combat deployment. No, yeah. Deployment I, know. I mean, you had some real fucking deployments that like people read about now. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to both Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Were you a chase for uh, more than one or just the one? Uh, yeah, Afghanistan. <laughs> it's hard to keep something clipped on your shirt. Yeah, because I keep stepping on it. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah, so I did the invasion first. Chase wasn't there yet. Chase uh, came, uh, and then we went to Okinawa, and then Chase came. Okay. Uh, so we did. Af- I did Afghanistan with Chase, and then uh, we did Iraq again with Chase. So invade Iraq invasion, then a trip to Japan, then mm-hmm. Afghanistan, then back to Fallujah. Yep. Okay. What was the invasion like? Other, uh, I mean, you took us through some of your like so, welding your own steel. On well, your that wasn't beast. even in the invasion. So the invasion, I, I don't even know what to make of it. It was like uh, we we fly into Kuwait, so we're living basically two weeks there waiting to go, right? Like, you know, military, hurry up and wait everywhere you go. So if you're not in a special operations unit, I'm sure you still got to wait, but like, it's way worse. Like, you know, an infantry company is, you know, it's mm. like the, you're just fodder. So we're sitting there for two or three weeks in this camp commando in Kuwait. And then I remember it was like March 17th or something. We get hit. I think they started just doing the bombing that, uh, right over uh, Baghdad. So we started getting hit with missiles, seersuckers. So this is my first experience into what I think combat is, which I didn't, it wasn't combat, but I didn't know at that time because I was fucking 18 years old. Yeah. So these missiles come in, they were seersuckers. They meant to hit ships. They were saying they were scuds. They hit in our area. So they're going gas, gas, gas. So we're in that mop four, that full mop gear. So <laughs> we got a gas mask up and all that. And we're going to be in there for hours now because they thought we got hit with chemical weapons. But it, it wasn't, luckily. But I remember <laughs> I'm I'm getting my gas mask on, but I had a piss so fucking bad. And this missile just hit, but I think it's gas. And everyone's running around going, gas, gas, gas. We have canaries in cages <laughs> just to see if they die. Like, they'll, that's gas. Like, yeah. that was our level of uh, uh, technology at that point was canaries. We had them in Humvees. So uh, I'm like, I'm going to fucking die from gas, but I got to piss so bad. And so I literally took my stuff off to piss before I mopped back up and got all my stuff back up. And then we're laying on a berm with our old school M16A2s, like someone was coming over the berm, even though the thing flew from 500 miles. Yeah. So then after that, we ended up going through. They broke through the berm. And uh, I remember I was, we're coming through. It's like March 18th, 19th. And we hit uh, Safwan, I think, was the initial town. So I'm ready for combat. Like, I'm ready for the movie stuff. Because I didn't know. I'm, our battalion commander gave her a, a speech, and he goes, 
we're estimating we're going to take 25% of us as casualties on the way in, and we're all going, yeah, like we're excited. <laughs> like, what is, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, after the other deployments, I realized how fucking stupid that is, but we thought we were getting into some shit because we were kids. Yeah. Uh, so we, we're going through. I have 50 cent in on my headphones in the club as I went through the berm. <laughs> that's what I was listening to. And as we break through, everyone's cheering for us. And they're going, go Bush, go Bush, America. I'm like, what the fuck? It was Bush, America, and Michael Jackson. That's what everyone was saying. That's all they care. And all they just wanted food. So we're just handing food out, like throwing MREs out everywhere. But, uh, yeah, then we ended up getting the Nazaria. And uh, up by Nazaria, there was contact. Uh, We also got hit with that uh, crazy sandstorm that you read about. Yeah, uh, we were digging foxholes, like fighting holes, basically, because uh, we knew the sandstorm was coming in, and there were enemy armored personnel in the area. That's what reports were. So intelligence, I don't think it was as good as it is nowadays. But you know, we were getting told we were, had a fifty column, fifty column of tanks and all this stuff coming at us, and there's no air because of sandstorm. So all our members all night long. We're in this trench and a sandstorm comes in where you can't breathe for like 12 hours. You can't see. My buddy's got an AT4 next to me and he's turning around with it with it behind my head. I'm like, bro, you're going to blow my head off if something does come. We're not going to be able to see this thing. Our, our thermals aren't working through it. So to make the situation worse, it starts raining. So now when rain hits a sandstorm, it's rocks falling on you. And then everything flooded, so we were, like, laying in puddles. Like, you could look at, like, uh, pictures or magazines and books. They have pictures of these, of all those guys sleeping in the mud. Like, that's what we were doing. We were sitting there in wet water. Guys got trench foot, like, <laughs> like it's World War One in a trench foot. But uh, anyway, so we went up. We blasted through Sackler. We uh, kept going up to Al-Kut area. And uh, we didn't go into Baghdad. Army had to take Baghdad. That was, like, one of the deals. So, um, yeah, then after that, it, w- it wasn't that crazy, man. It wasn't. It was a good first break-in, I think, for what was to come. Mm. Kind of like to get your feet wet a little bit, maybe, you know? Yeah, what was different about the second time other than, like, um, everything? Everything. Yeah. The Flugeo, um Man, so we went there. So they had Al Fajr in 04. So we went in 05. So they had the city basically, no one was in it for six months. So right when we were getting there, they were like, we're going to let the city back in. And then guess who came back in? All the insurgents. Hmm. So now you're fighting a war filled with people, but filled with insurgents. So we also had the areas north towards Saklawea, which is like very farmlandish. And then out west towards the Ramadi area. So, you know, a heavy insurgent presence. Um, and all we really did was patrol the contact because our, our leadership didn't want anyone getting hit in our AO. So, like, you, like, Route Fran, Route Michigan, Route Raleigh were all coming through those areas. I felt like the, the leadership just didn't want someone else's unit getting harmed in our AO because that would make them look bad. So they would just send us out. We would get blown the fuck up. All the time, we would get shot at yeah. uh, sniper rounds. We would get ambushed, but it was mostly IED, sniper. So, Can you talk about movement to contact for people who 
that subtlety might slip past. So movement to contact, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you just patrol on a predetermined route. Hopefully, not the same route you took prior, which we've had plenty of times, which doesn't work well until the enemy hits you. So you basically just walk into an ambush and fight your way out of it. That's what patrol and contact is. And in insurgency warfare, it's kind of stupid because we're wearing uniforms, we got Humvees. We, it's pretty easy to attack us. Yeah. That doesn't seem like uh, the method to fix that situation, right? It's kind of like uh, it's the same level of um, sophistication as like recon by fire. Where you just shoot at nothing until someone shoots back at you. Yeah, it, it, I think that, so. A lot of those uh, techniques. <laughs> These right? are great uh, military tactics, uh, Ben. Uh, also, your boy with the twenty-five percent casualty. I mean, it's just out of the field manual, right? For urban operations, I have no some idea. Fucking, that was no, that was the battalion commander. Well, yeah, some colonel was yeah. like opened up his field manuals, like, all right, twenty-five percent, sign me we up. We were psyched. We were so excited. We were going to take yeah. 25% casualty. What, How stupid is that? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Yeah. Then yeah in, give, give you one of those. In Fallujah, we, we took it. Like, we had a, yeah, we had a lot of guys getting fucked up. And you realize really quick how that's not cool, you know? Yeah. You, uh, so we blew past this, but Chase, who we had on like a year ago, uh, you have been like a pretty good booking producer for us. I think you asked like two or three guys so That's far. That's because I didn't want to come on. I wanted to put other people. Yeah, they no, have better exactly. stories than I have. They, those are the guys' stories I like to listen well, to. Well, it's better to just have you guys talk about each other's stories because nobody wants to tell all about their own stories either. Well, I think that's par for the course, right? Yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, you gave us some something about him. And, uh, of course, he's going to downplay it. But you said he was like a badass. And then all he talked about was, like, bleeding out in a Humvee and having Cheerios fall down on him, interrupting some volleyball game because he's humble. Yeah, it took his gladiator moment away. Yeah. yeah he Well, he had other situations where he could have went down in glory. And then, you know, you never get to choose when you get hit. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so he was always in the lead gun, man. That was, like, the worst spot. They would get hit all the time. So they, and they had to deal with if SV bids were coming up. Even just, like, decision-making. Like, sometimes you have innocent people out there driving cars, running around. Like, you got to make that decision because you're we're, at this time, we were getting hit so much. Like, we would just take our – when we had Humvees, we would ram through cars. Like, you couldn't stop. You were not allowed to stop. So he's a decision maker up there for that. So that, that's, you know, that's pretty incredible. But yeah, we, the one instance always draws back to my mind. Uh, so we were getting hit a bunch and uh, we decided to take it into our own hands in our platoon. We're like, we're not fucking just driving around getting blown up on Route Fran and on South Henry, North, like all these areas. We're like, we're going to do something about it. So we started unloading half our vehicles, like our truck. We, so we were like, Mounted and dismounted, right? Because we were a weapons company. So we had the 50s, the Mark 19s. Toes were gone at that point, 240s. We all had M4s. We had all the, So we had like a lot of stuff, right? And we had a lot of stuff we could keep in the back of that, that Humvee. So yeah. we started taking guys out of the trucks and putting them three blocks behind and then staging a fake patrol to try to fucking get the guys who were getting us. And it fucking worked. We started doing it. So we rolled up these two guys. These guys were bad dudes. So usually when you get bad dudes, it means something. They send it up to headquarters 
And then guys like where Daviva was at come in and they fucking hit the house. So we decided none of that was going to happen anymore because we weren't allowed in an area. Task force was coming through. It's like the whole section. We couldn't go in. They had a, they were doing like some raid. But they actually did an incredible job. They literally fixed the whole AO at that point. So, But we thought we were going to be badass for like kids, you know. And uh, we find out where the house is. So we had to do our own raid. So we roll through the next day. We raid the fucking thing. We take the computers, all this shit. On the way out, we get ambushed, dude. It looked like Star Wars. <laughs> so we're coming out of this uh, compound, and there's fuck. It's it's dark now, and there's so we it, day we do it at uh, sunset too, right? Like that's not when you do a raid, <laughs> which we didn't know. So we go into sunset. Once we get everything, it's dark. These guys are firing us from everywhere. So we're trying to get out. We're hiding behind a high back, trying to get the guys in the vehicles to get out of there. And uh, this uh, PKM's ripping down the street from about 100 yards. So Chase has a 203. So we're like, Chase, hit him with the 203. So Chase runs out. There's rounds hitting the street all over him. First round, boof, hits a wire about 15 feet in front of him and blows up. And he goes flying to the ground. He's like, ah, my legs are numb. So we pull him back in. He's like, ah, fuck. I'm like, you're right. He goes, I'm good, I'm good. He loads up another one, goes in and fucking kills the dude. Fucking launches it in, blows up the machine gun nest. Then we had to get out of there. And then they had, there were people, they were all over the roofs now. So we're, he's firing 240 everywhere. And it's just like, just coming in all over the place. Like the guy had balls, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. I was sitting there like, what the fuck's going on? What do you mean? It was like Star Wars, just With fucking the, lasers and shit. Of tracers, like tracers? Right? There was so many tracers. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Like, and you notice, uh, you know, five rounds in between those tracers. Whatever. There was yeah. a lot of rounds coming through everywhere. Yeah, but he blew. He blew up on that wire. Went to the ground. I remember he going, "My legs are numb," and he loaded one back up and crawled back out and hit the guy. Oh. I thought he got hit with an RPG because they were launching those motherfuckers too, but most of them were whipping by us. Yeah. And they were also, some of them were duds that were skipping, you know, by, luckily. Yeah. You know, those flathead ones, you know what I'm talking about? Like most people think RPG, the pointed, they have those flathead ones too. Mm. So I think they were just, anti-armor. He was just fucking hanging out wherever? No, he was running out into the street because we couldn't get a shot. Yeah. He ran out into the street to get the shot. Nice. Like rounds in around him. Yeah, he, he's got balls, man. Yeah. That's uh, crazy that, you know, you have like an 18-year-old kid in a turret of a gun truck that's first up and just like students having to make, you know, life and death decisions on his own behalf yeah. and on behalf of the fucking civilian non-combatants. Like, this is just a weird type of conflict that, you know, we probably weren't, well, no one can really be that ready for. It's a heavy responsibility, man, if you think about it. But honestly... um, the one thing the Marine Corps did do a good job was is with discipline and training. Like through boot camp, your infantry school, and then just your NCOs, man, if someone says something, you're fucking doing it, man. There's no question. Like they uh they really harp that discipline into you, but also uh the all your training standards, everything you do is to the T. It's it's perfect. And if not, you're in trouble. Yeah. So I think that also gave guys a lot of, um, you know, good tactics on the ground um, and how they were reacting with people. Yeah. He also said that you were like the, uh, you were like the unofficial platoon medic. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was, so every platoon's got one corpsman, but to get on the fire department, I knew I was going on the fire department. That's what I wanted to do. I took the test. I, I figured I would 
to my four years instead of college, I knew you had to be an EMT to get on to the fire department at that time. Now you don't. Now they train you CFR, which is just certified first responder and DFib. But back then you had to be an EMT and had an EMT and pay for your school. So I had an idea. I was like, talk to my uh, platoon sergeant. I'm like, what happens if the corpsman goes down? Shouldn't we be trained? Like, oh, they have combat lifesaver course. I'm like, well, that's not good enough because combat lifesaver course is like put gauze on and go, which, you know, is most trauma, right? You solve the airway, breathing, it's like and basic training, though. I mean, yeah, it's, it's basic training. Tourniquet or pull some shit out of the guy's airway and then, yeah. then hand him over to the medic. So like, at that point, I was but that's section. what we're talking about. There's no medic. Yeah, it was, so what if the medic goes down, right? If the corpsman goes down. Like, it was a legit thing, but also I was like, oh, I could use this to my advantage for to get my EMT for the fire department. But it was actually a legit thing. Um, so I was a section leader at that time, so I proposed to uh, the company commander, you know, if the corpsman goes down, we should be trained better. What about EMT school? So they sent us to Onslow County Community College. They sent a guy from each platoon, hmm. and we all got EMT certified. And it actually helped, like... Uh, you know, we all treated people out there, and it, the corpsman needed that help, too. And sometimes, you know, if a guy wasn't doing something he was supposed to be, at least you had another guy that could at least stabilize somebody. We had quick medevacs in Fallujah, right? Like, in Afghanistan, it's a whole different story. You got, you know, you have the golden hour in Fallujah. You know, we're, we're trying to get guys out of there in under 10 minutes. Was Chase the worst injury that you worked on? Did I personally worked on? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Me personally, yeah. Was it worse that you were good buddies with him too, or you were buddies with everyone in the platoon? Yeah, we were all buddies. Like Chase was like uh, me, Dave, Dane, a couple of us. We all like uh, we just gravitated towards. Chase. So you have to understand the Marine Corps. Like if you have three months more than the guy, like he's staying at parade rest talking to you. So he was two years less than us. So he was like one of our boots, as they say. But yeah. he was like he just we just gravitated towards him. He was good at everything he did. Um, he was super smart. He was very quiet though, but he had the sense of humor. So like, we really like took to chase and wanted, I wanted to protect him at that, uh, protect him at that time, which they were my guys, you know, like you want to protect them, but they're actually protecting me more than I'm ever protecting them. But you know, just in your head, you get that feeling, even though your guys are all the same age, yeah. but, um, we became, yeah, we were very close and then we came way closer after everything over the years, you know, like just full brothers. Like, we were brothers back then, but there's a difference. You know, they, that's what they the term Philadelphia, right? That That's brotherly love. Philadelphia is the term for brotherly love in combat. Like, when you go to combat with a guy and guys get injured and you, you see fucked up things, like, there's some bond there that I don't know if you could call it love or friendship or any brother. I don't think there's anything you could call it. There's this weird thing that you have forever, you know? it's yeah. There's not really a term for it, but Philadelphia was the term for that. You know, what is it, the Greek term, right? Yeah, well, I think Adelphi yeah. is like brother. Yeah. Or brotherhood. Or, yeah. yeah. So that's a Greek term because those guys fought all the time. They knew what that feeling was. So they didn't have brotherhood. They didn't call it love. They called it Philadelphia. It was a specific thing. Yeah. You know? What's it like trying to be comforting to a dude that you know pretty well where you don't know the outcome of his injuries, but you need him to calm down? I, yeah, I mean, you're not even thinking of that. Uh Basically focused on keeping keeping the guy alive, right? Yeah. So bleeding's secured, tourniquet's on. He's pale. He's going blue. He's you can't go to sleep. You know. I, I think I don't know if that's like medical terminology, but uh, 
No, I'm just lying to him. Tell him, yeah, we're there. We're there. We're there. He knew we weren't there, you know? Yeah. But I, I, I'll never forget, we're late, as we're cruising through, like, uh, a little bit before Fluja Surgical, right when I knew we were that close, I was like, he's going to make it. He has this, and I hit him with the morphine, too. So that's how I knew the morphine was uh, set in. He had this, someone, someone's grandma sent us these hats, like these little green caps. So everyone had one, but he had it on. He's got blood on his face, and he's going, Sergeant Marley, is my hat okay? And I'm like, yeah, Chase, your hat's fine. I knew he was going to make it at that time. <laughs> when he was saying that, I think it was a lot of the morphine, but I, that's the moment I felt like, okay, he's, he's, he's going to be all right. So that, we actually uh, blasted through the checkpoint to get into Fallujah uh, Surgical. They actually fired pop-ups at us because back at that time, uh, insurgents were stealing Humvees and trying to use them as V-bits. Hmm. So we gave our urgent surgical coming in, and as we're racing through the serpentine, they fired pop-ups. They thought we were someone bad because it was just it was just me in the back of a highback and a guy driving. It, it didn't look like a normal thing because we just hijacked the Humvee. You just left from the rest of the patrol. Yeah, I, I just. My buddy Dave went in, ripped him out, and was running with him. He passed him to me, threw him in the back, told the guy driving that Humvee, I'm like, go, Fluja Surgical, now. Like, now. And he, he actually wanted to wait for the rest of the platoon. I'm like, no, we're going. Hmm. So we were by ourselves, like a single Humvee, just racing. So uh, they fired pop-ups at us, and they were waving, and then they, they didn't shoot us, thank God. But then we went through, and uh, we were speeding on Fluja Surgical. That's when that, uh, we wrecked that volleyball game, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> When some officer comes out and starts screaming at us, we were driving too fast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we end up, uh, you know, we pull in the Fluja Surgical. We get pick up Chase, run him in, and those doctors there are incredible, yeah. amazing. So, uh, this doctor that was treating him. He was, uh, you know, a normal surgeon. He just vol- he just volunteered to go over there and be a trauma surgeon for a tour. Came in, just said, I have a tourniquet on. He's got this, that. Like, gave him two hits of morphine. That, like, I don't, I don't know much. And he's just like, you did, he's like, you did great. Don't worry. He's like comforting me. But he's meanwhile going, get him, boom, 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 boom. And Chase is on there, and they're clamping stuff. Dude, it was, it was uh, so professional how they worked. They were incredible. And uh, then even the doctor goes, all right, you, you can go now. It's, he's, he's okay. He's going to make it. He's okay. Like, it is like, that, that presence of mind for a doctor to do that is incredible to me. Like, uh, yeah, they this guy's have... dying, and he's he's still he can take care of that. And I'll say, don't worry, he's okay. You know, yeah. and he meant it. They yeah. got like five different checklists going in the brain at one time. Yeah, multitasking, and also that's that weird ability. You know how some people are very smart and can't multitask, and they can't be social. Yeah. All three at once. That's pretty incredible when you have that much brain power, right? Usually your brain goes to one thing. Yeah. I know you guys stay close. Like, this is fucking 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And you said that you have this. Yeah. yeah, You get this, like, bond that lasts forever. Yeah. Me, Chase, Dave, Buddy Dane, they're all doing well. And uh, we always were on a group text constant. Yeah. uh, Constantly. It's all jokes. We're all just laughing the whole time. Yeah. Um, we see each other probably. We used to see each other probably once a month, but now with kids and life and people moving away, it gets a little bit less. But we always make it a point to be together because I think that's really important that guys really need to do. Yeah. Like, don't don't just go off and 
dwell in your little pity hole. This is like what you were saying about your dad or people who retire from the fire department. It's like they, they don't get the kitchen table anymore. No. And guys don't, luckily for me, I got right on the fire department when I got out. Yeah. I didn't know what the kitchen table was. I kind of saw it as a kid, but I didn't know what that, why those guys did that. Right. I'm like, well, what is this? But when you get in there, I didn't, my transition was seamless. It was like, I was still in. Yeah. Because I still had this thing going. It's when you leave that, that's the problem. So that's what guys got to stay in touch with each other. They like, and you know what? Reach out to somebody, reach out. Who was your boy when you were in? Who was your sister? Who was your brother? Like who, who did you get along with? Like, maybe they want to hear from you. Like, why do, why do you got to wait for someone to call you? Maybe they want to hear from you. And you're like, you know what? I was just thinking about you. And then you also like, Hey, let's get together. Like, you know, bring back up those good memories. Cause for all the bad memories, there was a ton of good ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, having good people makes the bad memories into good ones sometimes anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you were serving, what was your, what were people back home? What was it like talking to them? Were they like, cause I know that firefighters are super patriotic. They yeah. love, they are, they're like, go fucking give them hell, you know, some shit like that. Uh, versus like your closer family has to be like worried for you, but proud at the same time. Right. Yeah. Like in the invasion, like I, we didn't even, we ran out of food. Like we didn't even have, we didn't have phones. We didn't even have mail. Like I remember I got my first piece of mail. I was like two and a half, three months in. Mm. It was a dear John letter too. (laughs) (laughs) It it actually was from her, my, this girlfriend I was dating when I was like 16 and I was 18 at this time still. It was from her friend. So I got a dear John letter from uh, one of my ex-girlfriend's friends. I don't even know how much of a girlfriend it was. I just, you know, I thought it was at that time. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, we. So we didn't. I'm not have... a smart man, but I know what love is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I felt like it, <laughs> dude. When you're going away, you just feel like you're in love with anything. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, we didn't have much contact, but then when you, we got back, and then the other deployments, there was more contact. So like the fire department, my, you know, my father was on job, my uncle was still on. These guys would send us shirts. They would send us all kinds of stuff. My uncle, Jimmy, uh, we we didn't have, like, armor in our trucks. He got some contact. He sent us, like, a thousand second chance vests, like uh, the bulletproof vests, to line our Humvees with. With the cops wear? Yeah, just we had nothing. So, Sam, we were lining our Humvees with these things. He sent us those. He got them donated, uh, sending us gear like EOTech, EOTech's uh, Surefire Lights, like, because we didn't have anything. Hmm. So that, that was for, like, my Uncle Jimmy, um, you know, all the family. But, yeah, my mom, she was just numb. She said she would just not pay attention and try to think about anything, you know. Yeah. I felt safe, I think. But yeah, I think we all were worried. Yeah. I wouldn't want my son to do that. But <laughs> I know. It's, it's so hypocritical. Oh, of course, yeah. Fathers are the biggest hypocrites alive. Yeah. I'm becoming one myself big time. <laughs> so four years, you use this as a replacement for college. You just thought four years was like a cool, like a good time frame. Yeah, Chase like, and I talked to us I about know. this, the same thing. It's, he said, it's it, what, it's what you do. And, you yeah. know, Roman army, 25 years. It's what you do. It's just what you do. Yeah. yeah. Structure, right? Yeah. Four years. If they told me six, I probably would have done that. Right. I don't know. Well, four col- seemed good because college was four, and I couldn't get on the fire department until I was 21 anyway. Yeah, high school is four, college is four. Let me enlist for four. No other reason. Sounds good to me. 
how do you make the transition seamless? Because you got to take a test. So are you just like timing it, so, lining it up? Yeah. So that was a big problem. Uh, I literally scheduled my boot camp around the fire department test. Uh, it was supposed <laughs> to be given on November 12th of 2002. And I knew that because I graduated boot Oh, yeah. I graduated boot camp the week before. So I, I, I had that space. They canceled the test and then made it when I was in infantry school. So now I was fucked. But if you're on active duty orders, city charter says they have to guarantee you the test. So while I was in, I had problems. They wouldn't give me the test. Because so the test is all every five years, right? Four or five. It depends, right? Yeah. It's, and with COVID now, it's worse. But um, so now I'm like, I'm screwed. Like, I, I missed the test now. Even But I registered on active duty orders, and it, I couldn't just leave to go take it because I didn't have time off. So in city charter, they said, if as long as you um, register, when you declare you want it, as long as it's not within 90 days of you separating from military service, they have to give it to you. Now, they weren't doing that because DCAS is, uh, that's who the Department of Citywide Administrative Services, hmm. they are uh, very inefficient, to say the least. Um, One could imagine. So uh, my father went to high school and my uncle actually went to high school my father was good friends with uh steve cassidy who was the head of the firefighter unit at the time and uh talked to him so he got his lawyer on it and then i had to go down there in uniform while i was still in and demand the test so <laughs> i remember, i'll never forget it because my dad had his uniform on i had mine they had a lawyer the lawyer said to wear it like I, I you know i wasn't about doing any of this he goes no we're making a statement you just got off a southwest flight you're wearing your uniform yeah so <laughs> so the lawyer's like we're demanding the test here city charter and so like what's going on like we the, the commissioner come down now the deputy commissioner whatever so someone gets word and then some guy that comes up that i thought was the janitor asked for my packet of information i gave it to him and i took the test two weeks later we're like 40 other veterans they opened up a test because of that yeah. they, and it was a bunch of guys so i was in probate school with a bunch of guys like yeah the test happened out of nowhere i don't know how this happened i'm like I had to go down on my uniform with the lawyer for the union on the job. And then they were like yelling at us and we actually got the test like we were owed. So it, it worked. And now it's kind of seamless. They, they do it. They do it now pretty well. Yeah. So you'd have to like, I mean, if you're getting out in two years, the test is this year. You got to like take leave, come up, take the test. So my answer is to anybody listening, a lot of guys in the military want to be a fireman. They want to be a cop, a sheriff, any of that stuff. It's a four-year plan, five-year plan. Yeah. You have to, if you're thinking about it, do it now. Find out about it now. You have to wait for it. You have to sign up for a test, wait for the test, take it, then go through the whole process, right? That's background investigations. It's a physical. It's a written. It's investigations after, and it's also your list numbers, right? A lot of places, veterans get preference points, right? Like you might get uh, five points on an exam, which is is nice, you know? Yeah. If you live in a city, you get five points, you know, I, most guys back in, we would get a hundred on the fire department exam. It wasn't relatively hard test at all. Like not splitting the atom. It, was, it wasn't what you guys going to warrant. Would have. It's like fireman Steve is the OV. The OV goes up the fire escape. What did fireman Steve do? Go around the block. Like it's not <laughs> hard stuff. Some people fail this. I don't know how that is, but be prepared. So if you're listening, you want to do any of that stuff and you're, if you're thinking about it, Sign up anyway. Yeah, Just you told me to take the it. test like right yes. before I went to grad school. 
Yeah, I did. That's an option. And you're like, I'm going to Wharton. Why would I do that? I'm like, you never know. Yeah, actually, I could be like, you know, just doing a side business on my couple days off a week. You literally is. So we have uh, we have guys that are doctors on our job. We have Cornell engineers on our job. We have we have pretty much everything. Yeah, and, and it's guys all because of the schedule. Side, everyone, yeah, and everyone runs side businesses because you have to. Like the the money sounds good on paper, but what you bring home is not as much. But you know, you're building your pension in the end, so that matters. You got your health coverage, and you have a job. A, it's not a job; it's a career. You have something you love. But then a lot of guys bang nails on the side. They bartend, or they're doctors, hmm. or they're engineers, and they they do stuff like that. Like it, it's a flexible job where you know. If, Say you only had to work three days a week on your own practice doing what you wanted, that's fine. And then you have the fire department you're working also, and you're allowed to do that. So what's the actual, how much do you work? Well, I think it's, uh, it comes out to 48 hours a week. But so average over the month, it's not uh, the sum of the, uh, the 48 times four because you get an extra tour off because you're working the extra hours of a 40-hour work week. So you're on, you know, 24, you have a day or two off, basically, sometimes yeah. three. Yeah. And you could just, like, trade and swap days with everybody? And is that, yeah, that's a beautiful part. You can, uh, so it's mutual, <laughs> right? So if you're going to work for me, I work for you. I owe you a tour. So I'm like, oh, I need off. It's my son's birthday on Sunday. Can you work for me? So you work for me, then I work for you the next week when yeah. you need off. Hmm. It's a general, it's, it's, it's not even, it used to be a gentleman's agreement, but now it's official. Like you have to plug it in on uh, our computers that some, you work for him and they work for you. They taught you guys how to use computers, huh? Barely. I remember yeah. going to the old rescue two on, yeah. on Bergen street and you guys had a fucking like 1980s fax machine or whatever that thing was with the, uh, with the printer paper, with the little holes feeding it through. The, and you were like teleprinter. <laughs> Now we have a computer that does that. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that's not that long ago. No, this is like a few years ago. And you just ripped that thing off. So and we go? have something called the bag we still use, right? So it's it's like the Pony Express for the fire department. Basically, you have a little leather bag. And as of even 10, 15 years ago, all your marks, everything you'd put in this leather bag, and the battalion would come pick it up. They would drop the, the division who would bring it to the borough, who would bring it downtown to get it processed. We still have the bag. Now we have email, we have fax machines, we have telephones. We still have the bag for stuff. <laughs> like For what, though? Like, what I do you know. put, like, still what have do you the put in there? They come in, they're like, you have anything to go out? I'm like, no. What is this, 2010? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that long ago, but like, no. What, like timesheets no. and stuff? Well, so now we do it all on the computer. Yeah, but that's all. Yeah, your timesheets and everything were in there. So now they'll, like, deliver department orders that I print off the computer. They still, like, deliver them. Yeah. It, I, it's archaic, man. I don't know. Well, you know. The fire department just got fax machines, like, 10 years ago. We're a slow breed. Uh, fires always go out. That's all that matters, right? Exactly. Just keep the fires out. Well, I know you guys all have, like, fucking AOL email addresses, too. Microsoft, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, like, uh, uh, there's a couple of guys I know have, like, an AOL email still. Oh, really? Yeah. Remember the joy of AOL Instant Messenger when you were in high school? <laughs> the joy or the time Remember suck? The ding, ding, it would, like, ring up. 
and you listen to it. Yeah, now it's the now and you can talk to your friends when you got kids home. nowadays. That was the beginning it's the, of the poison. Uh, nowadays, it's the kids with the uh, ellipsis at the bottom of your iMessage. What's an ellipsis? It's uh, three dots. Comes up when it shows. I know what that means now. Yeah. Yeah. So here you go. You learn something all the time. I haven't been to school in a long time, man. How smooth was the transition, like training-wise, and first getting on the job after coming out? Extremely smooth. Actually, just because you'd grown up around it, or because no, it was the, the same Marine structure? Like the I military. actually came in very rigid. Like I came in off the Marine Corps, so when I got in the fire department, I was like, "Be loud, be fast, everything they say." Like I was very rigid. You know, mm. you, you've met Marines out of their first enlistment, right? They're very right high and tight, ready to go. Like, I was like that, which is probably enjoyable for a superior. So I did, I did all right doing that. But uh, yeah. I, 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 I only did it when I had to because I realized, like, through my four years, as a leader there, I wasn't like that. When I was a sergeant, I took care of my guys. I never hazed anybody. I was all about completing the mission, don't get in trouble, make sure our shit gets done, and I don't give a fuck if you're not shaved right now, just if the first one comes around fucking go hide somewhere. Like, you know, I, I wasn't a dick like that. Cause I, I hated those people that that's all they cared about was, uh, you know, almost strict standard rules. So I did that in probie school, like just to show that I, I know what's going Cause I was the squad leader for my, uh, probie school yeah. platoon also, just cause you're military. So you do that, you get heat off you and then like, all right, now we can relax. Like let's, let's learn, you know? Yeah. Is that the difference between growing up in a garrison force and a combat force? Yeah. So that was a big separation, right? So think about it. I joined in 02 and uh, the Marines hadn't been in combat, like Gulf War. Right. Three day war, like a couple units uh, before that, Grenada. Yeah. I remember Somalia, I... Somalia, they were there. But like, we, I, none of our leaders were in combat. So it was all garrison shit. Yeah. I remember. Uh... Like our, you know, in Army Infantry, you get the Combat Infantry badge. looks like a Christmas rifle yeah. uh, with the wreath around it. And yeah, I remember one of our drill sergeants had one. And then yeah, I had like, yeah, I had, yeah. I had platoon sergeants, first sergeants, none of the officers. Nobody had a CIB when I was like a young private. And then like, you know, now or I guess, you know, as of like a few years ago, Anybody who's like a fucking corporal and up would have it. Yeah. Right. Just from time served and you were bound to have been in combat. But now it's like back on the decline. So the different shit becomes more important than the other shit. It's like, why did I just spend nine months almost getting killed every day? And I care that a guy shaved today versus like last night, um, which you're talking about versus like putting fucking starch in my BDUs and getting a press line on my pants and like spit shine boots, which you had senior leaders that would, that would show, you know, turn up like that. And you'd be like, all right, well, you know, I know exactly what this fucking guy's thinking. We a hundred percent. I remember, uh, my senior drill instructor, gunnery sergeant, Stan, gunnery sergeant, uh, Baudet at the time, I think he got to, First sergeant, he, he got out, but he had a combat action ribbon. He was in Somalia. He had a scar through his face. It wasn't from Somalia, but he was a badass. <laughs> from a street fight. Yeah, I don't know what it was from, but dude, the guy was a badass motherfucker. Like, Marine inf- infantry to the heart. 
Mm. He was actually on uh, some shows on Discovery Channel after, like years later because he ended up uh, he ended up going to three six. I was in two six uh, in Afghanistan. Him getting a bronze star with a V. He got wounded. He, you know, the guy, whatever. Not that, that means anything, but the guy was uh, he had a presence, man. Like, and he had a combat action ribbon. And we all were in boot camp. Like, whoa, he's got a combat action ribbon. Yeah. So I remember when we got to the fleet. Idiots would put a combat action ribbon on the back of their windshield of their truck. And some idiots would put it upside down because blue is supposed to go to the right. Like, they would have it upside down. Like, like I, and then everyone got one within the next four years. Like, and guy would put that on his car is insane to me. But, like, that was always the big joke. Like, oh, you got one, too? Oh, you're in the military? <laughs> yeah, for people who haven't lived by an army base, the hardos driving around with, like, their entire uniform stickered on yeah. their back window. Yeah. My Didn't thing. you say, wait, <laughs> I think I know what you're about to say. The stickers? No. Your buddy with the hat. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. Can we tell that one? Yeah. I mean, it's not like much well, so, to tell. Listen, you're 18 years old now, right? You just came back from fucking war. <laughs> it wasn't that much war compared to what war really is, but you don't know this. Uh, so I, we had two weeks of libo. We just got back from, uh, the invasion. So my buddy, Dave, David Allen boy, the boy, I know boy, that's what Chase was doing that impression of him. We're all in formation and they're missing Babnu. They're like, where's Babnu at? Like, if you miss formation, you're fucked. And especially coming back from libo, like, you know, we just had two weeks off. Hmm. He comes walking in, he's like, how now, boys, I'm here. And he's got an Ira Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran hat on, like he's a 90-year-old D-Day veteran. And he's strolling up to the fucking formation. And we're like, what? The Did they even make those right now? You know, this is right after we got back. And he struggles right in the formation. That's right, boys, I'm a veteran. I'll be late if I want to. <laughs> you got to interview him, man. You come from Happy. the fucking VFW? Him. Dude, this guy got out and became a professional poker player off a $5,000 loan he took. He couldn't have saved up 5000 in the no, military? He took, no, he, he made plenty off that. He was just playing professional poker. But yeah, he's For how long? Years. I, I think he's, he's, he's still in doing all kinds of gambling stuff. Really? Well, maybe. All right. You should talk to him. Well, we haven't had a professional gambler on yet. We should. Oh, dude, he, he's, he's a hell of a time, man. I could tell you a funny story about him. So, David Allen Boy liked his uh, time to himself in the Porter John in Fallujah. And he'd walk across <laughs> our little street we had there in Camp Barria with his silkies on and flip flops and a little DVD player in his hand and a bottle of lotion. And he'd be like, ha, da 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 da, da da. And he'd be like humming. He would do it every day at the same time if we were back. So he goes in there one day, and we're like, yo, let's go get him. Let's go fuck him up. So we got milk. We had flour. We had fucking CLP, all kinds of shit. So he goes in there, and, and we're listening. And he's like, yeah, yeah, boy, yeah, get her, boy, get it." And he's, like, talking like that to the porn. <laughs> so we start squirting oil, milk, powder, everything in on. We crush him. And we all run away laughing. He kicks the fucking door up and goes, and he's covered in everything and full. He looks like a pancake batter mix. He's like, who did it? I'm going to fight all you motherfuckers. You right here right now. Who did it? 
So he's like, line up, boys. I'm fighting one of you. So I was like, I did it. He goes, ah, fuck you. Who else did it? <laughs> he was going nuts. Chase liked that story. <laughs> oh, shit. You now we have, have to have more. You might have to cut half this stuff out. <laughs> he's uh, tripping. Yeah. Would cut his name out or cut the story out? You don't have to cut his name out. He don't give a fuck. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> he doesn't care. He could care less about anything. Is there anything that you didn't know about Chase or Bresler until they were on the show? Yeah. Uh, Bresler's eye injury I didn't know about. I knew he played uh, baseball for the academy. But, I, I, yeah, I never – it was actually – actually, I didn't know a lot of that about Bresler because, uh, you know, you just figure you'd hear about – military fire department and it was more about his growing up and all that like so i knew his father was a battalion chief down in baltimore my father was friends with him his dad would come up he was friends with uh guys in the 18th battalion where my dad worked so like they actually knew each other so my dad knew bresler before i knew bresler he met him prior you know uh when he was in the uh the military but uh yeah it was actually really interesting hearing the story and bresler's a real smart sharp guy super organized just like gets things done you know those people like just get things done like i think that's half of uh intelligence matters a lot but getting things done matter more like people that you could count on to get things done like he's one of those guys he he he's always doing something you know yeah but uh hearing his background story on that like i we don't talk about that we usually break each other's balls um yeah like we're not we're not very serious like we we don't have super in-depth conversations where would mean him where we were at because we were with senior guys. So when we went to rescue two, you know, we got under 10 years on the job. We're working with guys with 30 years on a job who are hard dudes. So you keep your mouth shut and you're just talking about what you guys are doing. So you're getting small talk, but n- not as much. You know, you're kind of in that dynamic of uh, that tribe with the, the elders. So, yeah, it, it, that's what's good about that podcast. You actually hear about somebody that you're good friends with and you would never hear prior because those conversations just don't exist in our uh, cultural dynamic with what uh you know with the people we're with right yeah because if everyone if you were telling someone your life story they would just make fun of you the whole time like that's what i would do <laughs> like you, we should have a podcast where we get a guy here and i just make fun of his whole life story and I'll yeah. be the interview and just make fun of his whole life. Yeah, it's like that. Uh, <laughs> that's, 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 what I, that's what we do at the firehouse. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did this. Oh, yeah, good for you. Like, that's uh, the whole thing would be that. Yeah. Guess you had to be there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Look at this guy. This guy thinks he's somebody. <laughs> no, that's good. We're so, uh, we'll just start heckling people that we have on. That It'd be a good uh, bonus feature. Yeah. The roasting of veterans. Yeah. We have someone come on, share their wait, life wait, story, wait, wait, and then we just yeah, we just roast the shit out of them. You're like, oh, yeah, really? Oh, well, you joined the Marines? Oh, you some kind of... Uh, uh. <laughs> Good one. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> so you want to talk about, like, special ops firefighting? I don't know how much we talked about this with Bresler, but, like, you guys... You know, said you're in rescue too, so you have to like come up in a regular company. Which, like, what's the difference between like 
a truck, an engine, a ladder, yeah, all the fucking that. lingo, the fact that none of the house numbers make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm not in Rescue 2 anymore. I got promoted. I'm a lieutenant now. Uh, that was bouncing in the 7th Division, which is like uh, the Bronx from the Cross Bronx, up Washington Heights, Harlem, uh, the you know, in half of the Bronx. Uh, then I got back into uh, SOC Rescue Battalion. So Rescue Battalion... Uh, so I'm bouncing now. I don't have a spot. I fill in for vacations for officers that are on vacation or medical leave if they get hurt. Um, it takes a while to get a spot. You know, so for every rescue company, there's only three lieutenants. And some guys stay there for 15 years, 20 years. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a long process. It's a lot of luck, timing, who you know a lot, right? So um, all that dynamic goes on. But... So anyway, uh, you know, I was appointed the 44 truck in the Bronx, which is uh, the best truck company on the New York City Fire Department. And I which stand also, behind which that. makes it the best fire truck company in the world. In the world? Yeah. yeah. But um, so, so basically the truck, what the truck does, the truck's the one with the big ladder on the back, not the small ladders. The engine's got some ladders on it, but like, you know, the big one for anyone listening that doesn't understand what that is. Yeah. So basically what happens is the engine has the hose. The engine pulls up, they start connecting to a hydrant, and they start stretching hose. The truck, they pull up, they have to force entry, ventilate, and search for people. So they're putting a guy on the roof with the ladder or any other means accessible to get up there to either, if it's a top floor fire, cut, vent the bulkhead, rope rescue, see if anybody's in that bulkhead, top stairs, give a report, they have an OV outside vent position. They're going up fire escapes or off ladders coming in from the outside. Inside team, you have a can man and a force entry guy and the officer. They're going in before the engine now, right? The engine's hooking up. They're going up. They get to the door. If the door is open, smoke blows out. You go in. You search for people in the fire. If the door is not open, we force entry. Then we crawl in. We try to find the fire first because that's your biggest problem. If you got the fire, we have a can, right? The can is the fire extinguisher. That little water extinguisher of two and a half gallons with a little finger press over the top and just spurting it at that door will stop fire from coming out. You have a full room of fire coming out, that, that thing spurts it back. The other guys go off searching, looking for people, hmm. which sometimes is uh, an uncomfortable situation because you can't see. Like, you, you can't see, man. It's, it's black as your hand over your face, you know? We just remember the layout? No, you, I don't know where I'm going anytime, honestly. But <laughs> I try to make good guesses, right? Yeah. But if it's that blacked out, you, you, you don't know. You try to get to the floor as low as you can and shine a light. Maybe if you're real low, depending on the, the, the fire and the heat, you might see some, you, you might, you'll see some stuff. But now with all this stuff burning, like these couches we're sitting on, these desks, it's, it's like oil, man. It's black. It's, it's, it's just in a cakes to your face piece, so it's hard to see. It's real hot stuff. Even the smoke's kind of hot, right? Like, so you kind of it's you kind of got to branch off. So as they're searching, then you're trying to relay back to the engine where the fire is at. The engine stretches. They have to stretch the line up. Now, if it's a house, it's fast, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a roll frame brownstone, it's a lot faster. In a big H type or building like this, like it takes a long time to get that line stretching up here, right? But when I say a long time, I'm talking about a couple minutes. So these guys, 
in this fire department is so proficient at stretching, they get they get up there quick. But it seems like a long time when you're there, you know. Yeah. Um, so the engine puts that fire out, and then afterwards the truck overhauls. So you got to rip everything apart. So now once you put the main body of fire out, which means that whole room burning or a couple rooms burning, you knock it down. Then you have to overhaul. You have to rip ceiling walls, everything. Because if there's even a little bit of fire, if you leave, guess what's going to happen? It's rekindled, so start again. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that mission. So a rescue company is, um, their main mission is to rescue firemen that are in trouble or hurt. That's like the main mission. But Luckily, that doesn't happen that often. So we have a lot of other missions. It's kind of, um, we do scuba diving rescue operations, collapse rescue operations, trench, confined space, high angle rescues, when, you know, guys hanging off the scaffolding. Uh, but so we also get deployed to every fire in the borough. So when we go there, we come in. If they don't need us, we don't have to do anything. If they need us, we go and we assist with the operation basically. So, you know, they have a good fire going, second alarm, third alarm. We come in with those units and we assist them. And you have a bunch of guys with 20 something years on the job working with some younger guys. It's like, it's a nice thing. Like, you know, we're all gentlemen. Hey, you need a hand here. You guys good. And like, we help out with stuff, you know, and if shit goes bad, then you have to act. So you said you had less than 10 years, but you're still like a really junior guy in rescue. Well, when I got there, yeah, yeah, I had seven years when I went to rescue too. I was super junior. Yeah, How yeah, old? it was. I was working with guys my dad's age. Dude. It was intimidating as hell. <laughs> How do you build credibility? You just keep your mouth shut and keep your mouth do the shut right and thing? work. Yeah, yeah. They when, don't in that company. They don't care about anything unless you do do the right thing in a fire. That's all they care about. Hmm. Rescue too, like you if. You could come in in clown makeup, but if you're fucking good in the fire, they don't give a shit. That's all they care about. High heels and... Uh, yeah, you could do that. I don't care what you come in. It, it's all about... And it takes a while to build up that credibility, right? Yeah. How long did it take you till you felt like you were like comfortable like as a member of the, the house? Yeah. Probably three years. Yeah, a good three years. And you know what? Also, it's changeover, right? Just like in team dynamics, like your teams, like as guys leave, you just start moving you just move up the totem pole. I think that's kind of where it goes everywhere. Yeah, probably. Yeah. As you move up the totem pole, you just get credibility, even yeah. if it's not earned. You know, <laughs> I, a lot of people know that firefighters went scuba diving. Yeah, and we don't like it. A lot of us. <laughs> there's scuba diving and there's like diving in blacked out. Hudson River with ice flowing down and yeah. like it's dead uh, bodies from the mud. Well, you're in tri suits yeah. too, and you know your full man like your buoyancies are off. You're tethered. It's hard to explain why it would be uncomfortable for anyone listening. Like scuba diving, I always like oh, it's scuba diving. It's a whole different ball game. Like it's unless breathing you're doing, underwater, you know, doing just some other terrible shit. No, it's so like scuba diving. If you can see is beautiful when you can't see, you can't see, you don't know your depth because you're constant in scuba diving. You're constantly sinking or floating unless you're perfectly buoyant. Hmm. So to be perfectly buoyant, like you prep for that, 
So when we're diving in different currents and different, like you're never going to be perfectly buoyant. Plus we're in dry suits, so we have to go heavy to get down. You, if you sink too fast, your ears pop, and then you're fucked. If you float too fast, your lungs pop. Like so, you you can't you can't move in either direction too fast. And if you don't know your depth, you're you're kind of it's not comfortable. Yeah, and you can't see. And there's you're diving in places you're not supposed to dive, right? Yeah. So there's hazmat considerations, which never really. I, I didn't really care about that. I cared about like the jagged metal and getting wrapped up. So we're we're diving tethered. We're in calm lines, which is a rope too attached to us. So you can go down and get wrapped up on something, get stuck, and now you're pinned down there. And now you're trying to undo it, but you can't see. Yeah. So you start breathing heavier, right? So you're using your air heavier, so you can't do that. Like, so you, what do you cut it off? Like, it, there's a whole bunch of things that could go wrong, you know? Yeah. We have a buddy who uh, has a phobia of mayonnaise, and he went to school. you do or we do we do yeah eddie yeah 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 okay <laughs> guys got a fucking serious phobia of mayonnaise more than anything i've ever experienced and he's been scuba diving in raw sewage a shit and, tank and down si- nap street yeah yeah he said he'll take this shit tank scuba trip over mayonnaise he so eddie eddie had to dive into a they had a worker fall into a sewage treatment facility they're like 20 feet up on platforms. It, this is mechanical machinery down below, and it's spitting water out after it's treated into the fucking uh, the ocean. They had a worker fall in. Eddie has to go in and get him because guess what? When you show up, you have to do something. You're not saying no. It's dangerous. They, he's full scuba gear with 80s on. Like You, you, weigh, you weigh a lot when you have our, our full setup on. It's probably 90-something pounds. They lower him down on a rope. He goes in. Brian Newberry also, they put two divers in because it was that fucked up. There's machinery down there. So you don't know if you get sucked into somewhere, what's going on. You can't see. They end up finding a guy, and they pull him up, and they got him out of there. But it was, it was shit. It was like, it was, it was uh, wastewater. It was, you know, it was a treatment facility. Yeah. But they also didn't know that the tank next to them was, not, was an aerated tank. So if you went to an aerated tank, there's no buoyancy. They would have just rocketed to the bottom, and they would have had to just get pulled up by the rope. They would have blew their eardrums out immediately if they just dropped. But, yeah, they, they went in there, and they, the guy didn't survive. Like, it's, uh, you know, drownings. If, if you have a scuba diver rescue from drownings, it's uh, not survivable, really. Hmm. I don't think uh, Bresler has a stat on it. He says anything below 25 feet has never been a successful rescue in uh, drownings. I can't imagine what, like, somebody with, you know, fucking OCD coming out of the shit tank is like. I went waist deep into, like, an open sewage pit in Iraq, but uh, I, like, stripped down and had people hose me off out in the open, went and cried in the shower like Ace Ventura. Tell that story. Yeah. (laughs) We talked to Bresler about, like, getting promoted, being an officer in a fire department, so... I don't know if we got to go in too much depth on that, but, like, it's an individual decision for everybody, right? So how did you make yeah. it? So, you, you know, the military, you go in enlisted or you go in as an officer, right? Like, that's a commission, ROTC or an academy. Um, the fire department, everyone starts as a fireman, right? 
you start off uh, probate school, go through the ranks, but it's by a test. So you could stay a fireman for 30 years, 40 years. And those are our, those are the guys that put every fire out and make the job work. Yeah. Is the guys that stay as a fireman for that long. So if you want to study for a test, we have a test given every four or five years. Um, it's it's basically like if you could stack the books up of just paper without the binders, it would be like six feet tall of information. And there's a hundred questions on it. So now there's certain things that are gonna hit more than others, right? But it's a crazy amount of information to put a hundred questions out of. So you got to be into the books, guys. Study for two years, whatever. Hmm. Uh, so if it's a little know, bit different from the entry exam, yeah, way different. But you know, you got to put your effort in, and it's it's very doable. Like you just put your effort in, right? That's what I realized. I should have done that in high school after I studied flute. Ten, I'm like, oh, this is. If you put your effort in, it actually works. If you apply yourself, yeah. If you apply yourself, it works, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so when you're a lieutenant, basically, it's kind of like, uh, it's not like the officer in terms of military, like, um, for the, you are doing administrative stuff, like you're making sure the guys get paid, you got to pull their marks in, their vacations, medically, any, any problems you have to handle, but it's more of like a one IC type role. Like you're in the building in the fire with the guys, right? Like he's, he's not, yeah, out you said the, the guy goes in with the ground team. You get the can guy, the officer, and yeah. the other guy. Yeah. Right. So you're you're in there and um, you know, working in sock. Like I don't have to say anything to these guys. These guys are better than me by far. Easy. So you don't have to say much, but I have to let the chief know of anything I see or they find or any resources we need for my guys. Uh, when it comes to a technical thing, like you know, your guys are on point, keep the chief off their back or let the chief at least know what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we need an additional resource that's needed, like you don't have to do much, but when you're working in a regular company, you might have a guy with a year on a job. And that, that was actually the most rewarding experience I had as an officer. I was working in a company and I had a guy, I, I had it a couple times, but uh, a probie first fire, bring them their first fire. Like it's such a rewarding experience. Cause you know what this fire is, like a nice one-room job. Uh, I had this one with this guy. Uh, it was a top-floor job. On our way up, I knew the fire apartment because you could see it from the fire escape. On the way out, it was fire blowing out the window. It was on a top floor, so it's a long stretch. So I'm on my way up, and there's a woman coming out the floor below in that same apartment line. So apartment lines are the same layout usually, right? Mm -hmm. Usually. Now... Maybe down here, downtown, it's different because of uh, people cutting stuff up. But, like, in the Bronx, Washington Heights, old Harlem, they're usually the same apartment. So walk in there clear as day because it's floor blowing. I know exactly where the fire is going to be at because I knew it was in that room blowing out that window. So then you come up, and this guy comes up, and it's his first job. He's excited, and it's nice to know. I know we could just go in here 20 feet and put this fire out. So you bring this guy in here, and you do that, and, like, it's like a rewarding experience, man. Like to have a guy for his first fire. Like it's cool. Cause I remember my first job, Jerry O'Shea, uh, Lieutenant, he was Lieutenant. He was covering 44 truck. And then he ended up being my boss and rescue too. He brought me my first fire. Like, and I'll never forget it. What he did. It's, it's incredible. So it's, it's very rewarding to take a young guy. Like where I'm working now, I'm working with all 
pipe hitters, man, that are not that these young guys aren't. They just, you know, you're, you're teaching them. Yeah. Or you're, comf- you're, you're, you're putting them in the position to do the right thing. The guys I'm working with now, like, they, they, they're 10 times better than me. So I'm just kind of uh, an afterthought, you know? Yeah. I mean, Which it's is like, good. Uh, I like that. Yeah. You know? It's like, uh, you know, special operation in the military, or at least in SF, where I'm from, everyone's already an NCO or sergeant and above. Right. So, you know, you do have people who come in off the street, go to the pipeline and come in as their, you know, actual first time in combat. But the general idea is everyone's a little more mature. So if you come in and have to lead a group of these people, it's much more different than leading somebody who's like, you know, straight out of school like the other guy. I love the way your officers do things. Um, I've talked to numerous once I got promoted for like leadership lessons. Because I never knew who they were, like, doing any type of training stuff. And um, to see how they do things, like, the mission's going to get done. The guy's going to do what they got to do, but they got to make hire happy. They make the men happy, and they somehow just stay silent about it, right? At least some of them. Yeah, how do you lead people who don't need to be led? By doing that, right? By By giving them whatever they need. Yeah. By making their life easier, by making their morale higher. If the machine's working, let's make the machine better. How can I make the machine better? Support it as much as I can without getting involved. Yeah, remove obstacles. It. Yes, go. So is that most of what you've seen from transition from being an officer, working with a you know regular company, which you haven't really seen you guys at a regular company? Yeah, too. they're amazing. So they're yeah. the yeah they're the best. They they do everything. They train all the guys. They do. But when you have a young guy, so I, I never had a spot. So once you get a spot, you know, I was bouncing, doing the same thing, vacations, medical leaves, because spots come up here and there. But I was going back to rescue battalions, to special operations command. So I wasn't going for any specific company. I was waiting to get back. Yeah, those senior guys, they run everything and they're officers. So when you're there for the day, if something's going on, you can do something. But there's that social dynamic of... Uh, you know, when you're in the firehouse, if, they, if they're running a drill, you go down and you watch it. If they ask you a question, then you answer. Like, you don't chime in. Yeah. If it's your company, like you say, hey, we're going to do a drill, we're, whatever you guys want to do. Like, hey, well, look at that. You talk to the senior guy, they run it. When you're there for the day, you're kind of like just there. But they would ask you questions, man. They were good. Yeah. Knowing when to respond versus interject is pretty important. I think it's it's huge. So like a lot of I think a lot of leadership lessons are not the things people typically think about. It's a lot of the non sequiturs, like the social dynamics yeah. that really count, that make the impact, you know? You can be the best guy, the smartest guy, the strongest guy, the toughest guy, the best at your job, it doesn't matter. How do you react with people? How how do you know this guy versus this guy versus that guy? What does this guy need? What does that guy need? What does this guy need? How can I make him more successful, him, him? How can I get the most out of all these guys in different ways? So you got to be fluid. And I think that's something that you, you can't do unless you learn. But also the military prepares you for that because that's what we do all day by breaking balls, right? Breaking balls shows strength and weakness. You see everyone's strength and weakness. And if you know that, then you know what's going to make them successful. You can figure out that middle ground there. Hmm. Not to exploit the weakness, but to really understand how you can make the best version of them. Yeah, you know what's the best and you know what's the worst, and you can figure out how to... So when you watch that ball breaking, you can figure it out. Yeah. So as the officer, you can't do it. Yeah. 
That's another important but point. You watch, you can't. You're not. You're, you're you're not that dynamic anymore. You can't be. Yeah. You're the alter. And all those are your guys. That must have been the biggest uh, takeaway for uh, Will. Will. Oh, big time. Yeah. <laughs> and he's working in rescue too right now. Yeah. He's covering a spot. Yeah. You said he was like. Uh, you said Will at the breakfast table was like a machine gunner in a nest. Yeah, he's the he. If Will Downey was on your back when you you knew right away. He'd walk in for the tour, and immediately he'd start singing a song about somebody. He would have someone in his eye, and he would just start making up a song and singing it. You're like, yep, it's you for this day. (laughs) And you did not want that because the man knows how to break bowls better than anybody you've ever seen. He's got the quickest wit I've ever seen. What do you see about other vets coming in now since now you have, like, what, 15-plus years on? Uh, Yeah, the vets – uh, they're, they're amazing. They're great. I do a lot of outreach with vets on the fire department. We've had uh, guys running the problems, trying to come on a job. They didn't know the laws uh, with tests. Also getting hiring is probably it, it's it, New York City is a hard place, man. If uh, to work sometimes like if yeah, I'm I'm here for a lot of those guys. So I get phone calls. I reach out. Bresler does the same thing. He's uh, he's big into contacts with that. How's Wilkie doing? He's doing good, man. He's still not back full duty yet, man. He got burnt up bad. Yeah. That's a guy you got to bring in, man. He'd be good. He's, he's good. He's Ranger Battalion. Yes. Yeah, had uh, was first. What's uh, second? Savannah? First in Savannah. First, yeah. Yeah. Did one, Dude, full combat. Like one in combat. One enlistment or two enlistments or something came in. I think one. Yeah. Two? One? No. Well, wasn't like a retired guy. He no, was no, no, still no. young, yeah, probably young. in his twenties yeah, when he, he came uh, in. Yeah, he did. He did four years, but he was Afghanistan prime Ranger Afghanistan stuff, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we could get him in. He's such a good guy, man. When you talk about like, you know, guy getting burnt up, what is it usually? Like, gets caught in a room, gets falls through a fucking roof so or something. Normally, uh. It depends, right? So if you're in the engine, a lot of times it's your your knees and your legs. So what happens is, you know, this fire is burning 1,800, 2,000 degrees. you got water coming out at a high force, and it's going to hit the wall. It's going to run back underneath. So, so like, they get burnt on their legs, right? So the water flows back and will hit them. So the water is burning you? It's boiling water coming back. Oh. I hadn't considered that. Well, if you have... And also, no, I understand the concept. It's just something that I hadn't thought of. So yeah, you got to never think that, like uh, not being in it. So if you if you have a also say this room was on fire and we put water in it, yeah. If you leaned against this burning couch now that's soaked in the hot water, you're gonna get burned too by crawling on stuff from pressure and heat, right? Yeah. It's not just touching it. It's they're crawling over stuff, and the pressure with the heat, they get burnt on their knees. Yeah. Under the jacket, steam, steam burns. Um, the truck guys, ears, backs, everything from fire flashing over before the water comes on, they get, like, instant. Like, everyone you talk to, you get, it's burnt. It's going, going, warm, burnt. It, it, you know, there's no in-between, really. Hmm. So you just, like, feel it in an instant? I didn't even get into why my dad joined the job. My yep. uh, grandmother and got killed in the fire in 1985 in Brooklyn. And that's when he joined? That's why he joined, yeah. My uncle was already on the job. And my aunt got twin sisters. My aunt got severely burned. 
bad. And you were like a year old? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, burnt up. Uh, guy Joe Russo rescued him from 159 truck, yeah. Hmm. And actually, one of my probing school instructors rescued my grandfather. He was walking down the street in the neighborhood, picked up a ladder, and got him out of the top window. Really? Yeah. Ran, and I didn't know that. We didn't know that until my probing school graduation when we were at a neighborhood bar, Norris Park Bench, and uh, in Marine Park. And uh, they were talking. He goes, I remember the job on Quentin Road there. And he goes, I, I had the guy there. Like, that's my dad. Like, it was crazy, like, to see that happen. Yeah. Some guy in the neighborhood just pulled him out the window. What was your dad doing before that? Carpenter. Hmm. Yeah. He's carpenter his whole life. He was a carpenter still even uh, when he was a fireman. Do you still do that kind of stuff now he's retired? Well, he – so um, he had a massive heart attack uh, on Christmas last year. Yeah. Um, dis- his descending aorta, that's the Widowmaker, fully blocked. Um, 14-hour heart attack took away like – he had 35% heart function after ejection fracture. And uh, now he's back up to 60 or 70. So now he's rocking around the woods with a 25-pound plate on still. So he's doing okay. But uh, he was doing a lot before that. He uh, Basically, what he did was he was rebuilding homes for veterans. Um, after Hurricane Sandy, he was down helping rebuild homes. Uh, you know, he, he's out on disability. Yeah. So he can't work. He's not allowed to work. So he just goes and... Uh, Tries to help veterans and uh, anyone else needs help with building stuff because that's what he's good at, you know? Just like he hears about it, goes and does it. It's not like. Well, he's got contacts, yeah. No, okay. so like. Uh, like but like, Sandy... in, like informally. He yeah, no, work... no, there's no, yeah, he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a foundation. He just goes, yeah. yeah. He, he know none of these guys have, they should have foundations. They just go do it on their own, these guys. Yeah. They just go get a group of guys and they're like, oh, they need help. And they go and they just pay for everything and do it. What about that, like, tunnel the towers? Yeah, it's amazing. So, actually, you know what's amazing about that? I just, uh, man, randomly, on Veterans Day, I uh, one of my buddies, Billy Kundrat, who is with um, Dave, me, Chase, all those guys, um, he ended up going to MARSOC when I went to the fire department. He got killed uh, a couple of years ago in a C-130 crash over Mississippi. They were flying out to – it was it was for a training mission, too. They were flying out to Arizona to go jump. Hmm. So uh, the, apparently the prop blew off the plane, split the plane in half, and, uh, you know, all the guys died. Jesus Christ. But um, so, you know, I was close, very close with him, um, his family, and uh, I was looking through pictures on uh, – Veterans Day, and I saw pictures of me and Billy from, so f- we had Fleet Week uh, 2006 in New York City. We just c- came back, and I was getting to the fire department, so me, Billy, all the guys, where he had a ton of pictures, so I sent them to his wife. Uh, she's, I think she's remarried now, but you know, sent it to his wife, and uh, she goes, oh my God, I was just going to text you. We just got our whole mortgage paid off by the Tunnel of the Towers. So I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, it just random. She goes, I was literally going to text you. I haven't texted her in five years, six years. Hmm. And then randomly I found those pictures and sent it. And then she was saying, uh, I was going to text you today that they were they were just doing that for us. I've done a bunch of fundraisers with those guys. They're amazing, you know. Yeah, that guy uh, is always on the TV. The, uh, yeah. I can't pull his name out of my hat right now. But uh, the guy whose brother, you know, died on Siller. 9-11. Yeah. Frank? Yeah, Frank Siller, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we've talked about the burn center too, but like sometimes we talk about charities. The burn center is amazing. 
amazing yeah. charity. Yeah, they send me a sweatshirt every year. Oh yeah, the burns, yeah. I'll tell you what, they're amazing. The the burn centers are like you. You always think about if you die, where would you want your charity to go to? Yeah. So I always think about that. I would say the Bird Center and the Widows and Orphans Foundation for the fire department. Like, you know, if you died, where do you, where, where would you want donations meant in your name? Like, that shows you where you want, you know. So what do they do? Uh, they support all the families uh, and also extra care for the patients if they need something outside the fire department. Um, put families up in hotels, food, you know, stuff like that. You're going to add these to the list. Yeah, we'll put them on the RSS. And the widows and orphans just uh, they give money to the families of guys that died in line of duty, hmm. which is very simple. You know, it's kind of yeah. Well, that's why I'm wearing my coast to coast too with the charities there. Like I love the charity stuff. Well, it's probably on the whole good that we're not filming this episode, but you know, thanks for wearing the swag. Why? Are you out of there now? Huh? No, 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 no. Oh. No, I'm still in there, but still, I was going to see it on video. Oh, okay. I thought you, yeah. In our in our Rogan esque studio, I mean, there's a lot of red in here. I think he's going with like a red studio now. It's like wood on the walls. I, I don't know. I only see it from one angle. Yeah. Two more things I want to talk about with the fire department, maybe on both on separate tangents: the band and the football team. Yeah. So uh, the two best. You got your extracurriculars. Yeah. What? Sorry. Go ahead. I'm stepping on you. The two best firehouses on the job. So, yeah. Um, so when I got out, you know, I got in the fire department. I was, I'm always looking for something aggressive to do, I think, you know. I was looking to back, in, back into the military on a reserve level on the Army unit, like uh, National Guard level. But uh, my wife didn't want any of that. So I ended up uh, joining the fire department football team because I was – going to play college football. So I figured why not, you know, live yeah. out my dream in doing that. So I, I didn't join originally for the first two years. So I thought you had to be like a big time ball player and like, no man, we'll take anybody. So when I went there, it was uh, the most amazing time of my life, man. I played there for six years. You had a bunch of guys. Some played college, a lot of high school. Uh, we played against 32 teams, I think in the United States. Uh, all public service, so anywhere from fire department, sheriffs, border patrol, I, I mean everything. Uh, you're playing against former NFL guys, former D1 players, like, especially down south, now west, they have all that. Like you have a guy who was four years in the NFL, and then now he's a sheriff. Like, and guess what? He's on their football team. Yeah. So like the level of football was pretty cool, enough to get hurt a bunch of times. But uh, the... Yeah, it was amazing, man. Like, we play, like, six games a year. We'd practice. Uh, we played springtime. We'd practice twice a week. But uh, the camaraderie, man, uh, those guys, they were all at my wedding. Guys in my wedding party. Um, we were, like, rock stars without money when we went to a city. <laughs> but, like, the guys from New York, you had a bunch of idiot firemen walking in to play football. 20-something guys, you know, because we'd all split up. Like, 20-something guys walk in. To a random place in Texas, like and it's like New York's here. Like it was, it was always hilarious. We had a bunch of characters, man. It was, it just fulfilled. Like I, I you know, I like to have fun. I like to be around people that are characters. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, I like to, f- I like to live life. I like to feel life. You know. Yeah. 
to experience it. And those guys, you did. Now, the pipe band is uh, the greatest organization that's ever been in New York City. Um, they were founded in the 60s, and we have charter members still in the band, which is incredible. Um, they play every funeral. They, they play, at this point, everything. They play four or five times a week. So basically, they don't get paid to do that. They just get time off from work if they're working. Or if they're not working, they get a tour off. So, you know, all the funerals, but then there's parades, everything else. But after 9-11, those guys, they played every parade. Like it's uh, uh sorry, funeral. You know, 343 guys, and you only have 50 guys in the pipe band, and they lost a bunch of guys. They died. They somehow found a way to get, even if it was two or three guys, there'd be multiple funerals a day, they would say. And they would get them out there, and they'd play. Because they, they, they felt like they had to do it. And those guys were strung out, man. Those guys were digging and then going playing a funeral and back to digging. Like, uh, you know, I can't imagine what they went through, you know? Yeah. So I just, I, I don't play an instrument. I, this guy, Fitzy, he's a Marine from the 50s. He's like my grandfather. He says me and my buddy McPaulton are his sons, but he's like my grandfather. Uh, you know, he's 87 years old now, but uh, I met him 15 years ago at a parade in Dallas. The fire department was in and somehow we went for a game. And he was like, you're a Marine. I'm a Marine. You're joining the pipe band and being in the color guard. I'm like, okay. So I just started doing it, holding the flag in the front, you know. Then they're like, oh, you got to learn an instrument. So I started trying to learn the pipes. I was learning to chant. I had like five songs down. And uh, I just fucking discontinued. I ended up getting a, my shoulder dislocated in football or something else. And then uh, kind of. It's your bagpipe shoulder? Yeah, I just kind of like fell off on it. So then I was doing the tenor drum. I could, I, I could play the tenor drum too, a little bit, but uh, it, like the flag's the best because I don't have to show up too much. So. Yeah, I'm in a band. I hold a flag. Yeah, whatever. It's the culture that matters. Like those yeah. guys are amazing. Yeah, it's like you were in Fleetwood Mac and had like the uh, tambourine, the, the cowbell. Yeah, the cowbell. Yeah, give me the cowbell. No, it's uh, when you guys roll up somewhere. It's freaking great. I mean, two recent. I feel uncomfortable even saying you guys, like not me, them, because I'm just literally holding the flag. I I'm there. I'm like a groupie. Mm. I'm like a groupie, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was saying this to somebody recently, but Liam is like the most famous guy I know. If you I know were, who you were talking if you, to. About that. Yeah, I know. If you were thinking about it, uh, well, if I was sitting thinking about it, Liam's like the most famous dude I know. Which is if you if you make the connection to like military, you know, he's a rescue company captain and he runs the pipe band, which would be like if you were you know uh, an SF you know, battalion commander and also in charge of the army drill team, but it wasn't, you know, the drill team's kind of like, uh, but it's, this is actually like a pretty badass, you know, uh, public facing entity. So, you know, what's funny, uh, when I was in Fallujah, like our first two days, uh, one of our officers showed us a video and it was the fire department. It was called like, uh, I don't know if it was still riding. It was something, but Liam was featured heavily in it. So I didn't, I, my father and uncle kind of knew him, were friends with him. But we're watching this before we're about to go into the city, like to do shit. And they showed us, this is why we're here, which, you know, whether you agree or not with that, like that's a whole different, 
you know, back when you're 18 years old and you're just seeing this video, like yeah. propaganda, whatever. But we watched uh, this video and Liam was like on it a bunch. Uh, we're here to liberate the oppressed peoples of Iraq. Yeah, but it was something with the but fire department. But we're also department. here to it just is, get fucking revenge for the fire department. But it, yeah, but it, yeah. it inspired everybody. Like watching that video. Like, oh, it, yeah, so, I know. Yeah. So forget politics. For our survival of us on the ground, like watching that helped us for our own dynamic. Like, if you could separate that political propaganda thing, it, literally, we're trying to get these guys motivated right. to bring survive. as many, do your job because and none of bring as many people home as you can. Some guy trying to kill you and you trying to kill them. Like, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Do your job and bring as many people as you can home. Yeah. That helps accomplish that. So it's good. Anyway. So Liam's all over this like documentary already. Well, that was uh, yeah years. Well, he was yeah he was on it. Yeah, he was featured. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's amazing. He uh, he was my captain rescue too. He's uh, the chairman of the pipe band and uh, the drum major. He does uh, more for this job than I, anybody has ever. Yeah, he represents this job everywhere he goes, and he does a very good job of it. Yeah, he's like, and he's awesome. He's a sick fireman. Hmm. Godfather, too? No. Oh. I didn't name my kid Liam because of uh, Liam. Oh, really? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, fucking, I don't know. I, no, that's know. the big joke. <laughs> so when I named my kid Liam, they're like, would you name him after your new captain? I'm like, well, it's going to be... So my old captain was Steve Luisi, and I had a kid, like, right when I went to Rescue 2. I'm like, well, it's going to be Steve Luisi Marley, but now it's Liam Patrick Marley. No, it's from my wife's side of the family. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But I'll go with it, man. When every fucking person in your entire family is like ultra Irish and a firefighter is only like five names to choose from. It's not much. No. Well, you can find some weird ones. I looked at them. They don't sound right. Like Padrag or something? Yeah, like weird shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. I don't know if this is going to make the cut or not, but we were just talking about Liam's nephew now joining the seals so yeah, you Danny. get like the second generation of like you know kind of i mean he's like the next generation right he's like a generation younger than us being able to come in but also like took a bunch of his inspiration from hanging out with like guys like you and other people we know well it's it's not from it's from uh you know his father was a fireman in rescue too he uh yeah his father was a fireman rescue too you know liam is his uncle Liam's sister married his father? Um, those, those, all those brothers. There's four brothers. They all played Duke lacrosse. They all went to Chaminade. All four Duke lacrosse players, right? Mm -hmm. The youngest is there now. The oldest was the MVP in the 2011 season, the face-off guy. Danny was the goalie, um, and that's what Liam always said. Uh, Danny's always been one of the toughest guys he's ever met in general, but being that goalie too, like it's not, there's never a shutout. You're going to get scored on and you're also getting hit by those fucking balls at 110 miles an hour. Yeah. And he never bowed down. So, um, he knew he'd be tough at that, but like, so I think he looked at his, uh, father and uncle, like I looked at my father and uncle and wanted to do something, you know, um, at a Duke, he, you know, had very good job lined up. Yeah. He got a master's degree, but I think he had that um, feeling inside himself, like where he wanted to do more because his legacy is that, right? 
Yeah. His legacy was a lot of guys that were known for that, maybe. Yeah. It's crazy when you think of just how small of a cohort it is that keeps us all protected because of how much you see that military, firefighting, other public service is like a family job. You know, we're not picking from the population at random. It's like, you know, sons and daughters of people who've also done it or people who like their whole family is involved in it. And it's like that circle just keeps, well, theoretically, the circle that you originally thought of actually shrinks down to like, oh, wow, this is actually like a very small portion of people that do all this hard shit to keep us safe. Well, even look at professional sports. How many guys have fathers that are firemen or cops? It's everywhere. You have a J.J. Watt's dad's a fireman. Hmm. There's, there's like three guys at our job that got uh, kids that are professional athletes. Uh, NHL hockey. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Is that just because, I mean... I I just think... I I think there's something inherently in that nature when for service or military fire, even sport, like, it's all related. Like, sports prepared me for the military, which prepared me for the fire department, right? Mm. Like, all that works in the same tribal dynamic, I think. It's kind of... uh, it's all it's it, it's all uh, in that same uh, microcosm, basically, right? Yeah. Like if you were playing the piano all day, like would you want to be a professional sports player or? Yeah, an artist in the military. Or like, I think it's just different, and they're good at that. But I think it's just different sects of of our culture goes yeah. to those things, kind of. Yeah. Did you hear our episode with Shane? Where he was talking about like leaving hockey, and uh, no, he I said, didn't listen to it. Fuck, I was in Vegas. I was in Vegas when we were there too. No, I got to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said some of the same stuff you were saying earlier about it. Like it's not giving up the game; it's giving up the uh, you know the guys, the locker room, the camaraderie. When you're talking about your dad and guys, you know, like him retiring, it's like not for them. The locker room is like the. Um, uh, is like the kitchen table and it's like you know yeah. they could probably deal without you know lacing up their skates and taking a face off but like not being around their teammates is what really is getting you you just said something too about like you know sports prepared you for the military which prepared you for the fire department so we have to ask you the question that we ask everybody on the show which you already know it which is you know who are you today if you never served I'd still be in the fire department because that's what I want to do since I was four. Yeah. But I don't think I would uh, be where I'm at now. I don't think I would have uh, the confidence, the balls, the experience, the intangibles to uh, ever made the moves I made in my career at this point, maybe. And also just being a Marine helped me a lot. Like Marine privilege, like guys knew I was a Marine, so new combat marine whatever you want to fucking say with that shit like that's how it is in the fire department that probably that helped me a bunch too but uh yeah i would still be on the fire department i think because that's all i ever want to do and joining the marines was a whim that was like a bro i bought chickens six months ago randomly i joined the marines that same way i'm like i'm gonna join the marines i just bought it is four of them are dead out of the six (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, I just make whim decisions. 
Like, what am I going to do tomorrow? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> oh, thank you. I thought we were going to get some deep kind of answer. That was like, that's, that's you know, all the relief. lessons I learned about leadership. That's and, called comic uh, relief, brother. Yeah, I can't. exactly. No, I just bought some chickens. I think joining the Marines was kind of I the same way. Dis- I literally joined the Marines off a whim decision. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And I fucking did it. I went, what the fuck did I just do? I bought the chickens. Why did I do that? There's three of them are dead now. Four. As of yesterday. Mm. For like... See, you does, get- this, does that layman's term make any sense to you? Like, I like to dumb things down, right? To the, the heart of it. No, perfect sense. I think to everybody <laughs> listening. <laughs> what do you... Like, want to eat your own eggs and shit? Or you want to give the kids something to do? So, yeah. We, Nate just bought a bunch of chickens. Yes, they were supposed to lay eggs... After 20 weeks, 26 weeks, no eggs. So my son was going to sell so what, them. Now you start killing them off? Chickens under no, 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 no. This is what happened. So my son started, my son was going to sell them. This is the, the best answer to our show question ever, by the way. My son was supposed to help raise the chickens. He was going to sell the eggs, and he could get half the profit, and the other half goes to a charity. Hmm. So I wanted to seven. I wanted to teach him economy. Uh, profit and charity. And that's what we're going to do. But the bastards ain't laying eggs. So anyway, I shot a deer about two weeks ago and I dumped the carcass right in the backyard. Like, so I, my backyard's not like, I have eight acres. Like it's a swamp in the back. It's not like in my backyard, but a fence. Mm. So I put it in the back. Well, two days later, three of the chickens went missing. Coyotes from, they came and got the carcass. And then, uh, my youngest dog, who's six months old, is a Rhodesian Ridgeback, ripped up uh, Bob Jr. in the front yard, and it was a catastrophe. <laughs> there was legs, head, everything. I, I found it, and uh, my son lo- named Bob Jr. That's the chicken. King Jr. and Bob Jr. were his. Bailey lays with him in bed every night. It's his girl. Bailey killed Bob Jr. Legs everywhere. Chicken soup on, on the goddamn porch. Bailey the dog? Bailey the dog killed Bob Jr., made him chicken soup. So I had to hide the shit from my son. When are you going to tell him? Well, I went, I tried to go find a replacement chicken. Bob the third. No, I'm going to say it's Bob Jr. still, but I want my son to learn about loss. <laughs> but I don't want him to see uh, legs and all over the place from Bob Jr. Okay, well, it's the probably the most interesting response we've had to uh, our our marquee show question so far. I said I want to be a farmer. I said that was cut after that. Mm, okay, you yeah, could do whatever you want. Can, I don't yeah, care. Yeah, we can cut this too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to do a follow up on the replacement chicken. Yeah, late, we'll do well, like a check in. We'll have you phone in and see how the replacement chicken's doing. Hopefully, your son's not listening to the podcast. He's got this ipad i don't know he's fucking smart man he'll know it's not bob jr so so i I just gotta tell him i'll just say he flew away he went back to his family he's seven he's not gonna believe that shit it's like the kid can play the moonlight sonata on the fucking piano already he's not gonna fucking believe that it's like that you idiot chickens can't fucking fly he he calls me an idiot all the time because i try to play dumb to him and he thinks i'm an idiot because i do that he's like you you're like my son Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Steve, keeping our city safe and raising the next generation of young firefighters. 
We want to make another mention about this being a, a pretty giving week, giving Tuesday, what have you. Uh, please check out not only the charities, not just for this episode, but saved on our website at thankyounowwhat.com slash nonprofits. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe to our show on your podcast player of choice. Follow us on Instagram at Thank You Now What. Rate, review, and uh, join us next time on Thank You Now What.